Hello. Welcome to the Quarter 3 Games Podcast. My name is Bruce Garrett, and my game of the week is not Velocity Two Times. Hello, my name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Prison Architect. Hmm. Yeah. Both games aren't... They're not out yet, so that's why they can't be our games of the week. Velocity Two Times or Prison Architect. I thought Prison Architect was out. Well, Bruce, it's interesting you mentioned that. There's a difference between a game being out and people being able to play a game. Mm. There, there are various... They might even... Introversion might actually call the playable builds of Prison Architect. They might be calling them alphas. I could be wrong about that, but hmm. there are versions you can play. And by you, I mean you, Bruce Garrick, because I, Tom Chick, will not be playing any game before it's done. I've had hmm. my share of that with released games. I'm not going to do that with like early access, pre-release, alpha builds... I want no part of that. Any yeah. more than I would watch a movie before the soundtrack was in or before the finale was shot. I don't want to read the first draft of somebody's novel. Um, yeah. I'm going to wait for a game to be finished. You, on the other hand, you've been playing something, not Prison Architect. You've been playing something that's not done yet, haven't you? Yeah, I have to. I, I confess, I must admit. Uh, I've been playing uh, Sunless Sea by Fail Better Games. Um and the reason I've been doing that is that I actually backed the Kickstarter and I backed it to uh, I backed it enough that I get a bunch of rewards, one of which is the beta. Um, and uh, so, heck, I mean, if the uh, if it's available, uh, I'll play it. And the thing about it is that I really love Fall in London. Um, there are things about it that I kind of annoyed me uh, when it came out the free-to-play model that they've substantially changed now. Um, it's um, it's just this amazing imaginative uh, space that uh, that they've created. And I wanted to go there, and they've got this um, trailer that's now available for the game that I won't watch. Um, but it doesn't matter because I'm playing the game, so I know what I'm trying not to spoil. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm playing the game. I'm enjoying it. I really love the... Uh, the design, the, the artwork, and the mechanics are in some ways very similar to Fall in London, but of course it's a different type of game. So there are a lot of differences, and uh, that's something that I really uh, want to talk to Alexis Kennedy and Paul Aaron about, and we're going to do that. All right, well, let's, let's chat with them. Uh, stick around, because Bruce and I will uh, be back afterwards to talk a bit more about some of the stuff they've said, to talk about some unrelated things that we didn't want to have to subject Alexis and Paul to, but we're willing to subject you, the listener, to. Uh, so uh, let's talk to Alexis and Paul, and then uh, Bruce and I will come back and uh, hang out for a bit after that. Here we go. Come with me, my So guys, I backed Sunless Sea basically as soon as I saw that you guys were um, running a Kickstarter, and I specifically considered whether or not to get into the beta, and I decided that I really wanted to, mostly because I couldn't help myself, I guess, Um, but uh, I was really curious as to how you guys felt about the, the... what seems to be your real fundamental belief that stories are told by words and the sort of conflict that that has with a game in which you drive a ship around? I think 
I would describe my um, feelings as feelings of apostasy. Uh, I, um, I, I, so Paul and I have this running joke, which is a joke except when it's not, and then it is, about whether words or pictures are better, because I do most of the words and he does all of the pictures. <laughs> and uh, I got into making games with text because there are lots of things you can do with text you can't do with moving images. Uh, you, you, you can, it is tremendously cheap to do interesting things and to experiment. And what I realized slowly and painfully over the last four years is, um, uh, and this sounds absurd to say out loud, there are things you also can't do with words and there are effects that you simply can't achieve with words alone. But still, you know, it's some to see without the stories in it. And there's, I think there's about 60,000 words of text in there right now. There'll be about 200,000 by the time we're done. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have the context and it wouldn't have the... Um, uh, a, a narrative drive. It would be a, a, a minimal, moody, interesting experience, a kind of, you know, super slow bullet hell or something. I, I guess you could do something like that. But but it would be different. So, so yeah, uh, you know, I, I, text is my first love. Um, uh, and there are things you can do with it you can't do with moving images. But the other way around is also the case. And after four years, we were very keen to do something different. And both of us really like games. That's why we started doing this in the first place. Right. Well, I want to... But I, I want to still kind of feel like I betrayed my, my roots. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to get to those roots because you actually brought something up that forced me to use the Internet to purchase products from England, which uh, I think is, <laughs> still think is legal. Um, so... Alexis, you had mentioned to me a series of books called Fabled Lands. Um, and this is a, pic- a series of story, um, sort of story role-playing, um, which was published in the 90s. And you made it sound, the, the it has these maps and, and creates this world, and it sounded so fascinating that I basically had to go out on eBay and get some copies for myself. And I noticed something very interesting. So, on when I'm playing Sunless Sea, um, I, first of all, I love Fall in London, uh, formerly uh, the artist formerly known as Echo Bazaar. Um, the uh, I, I love the writing. I love the setting. I, there was something very interesting when I started playing. So, a Fable Lands is just a, a series of storybooks that it's you know kind of the choose your own adventures sort of. I mean, it's, I've never quite played something exactly like this because it's an actual role playing game. Um, in paragraph format. But the thing, as soon as I opened the book, I started reading. And there's like an opening passage where you're on a ship and you wash up on shore. And I read that passage probably about five or six times just to give myself sort of the, just to kind of sort of revel in it and, 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 and get into the environment that and the atmosphere that it was creating. And I had no problem with that. And I could, I took as long as I wanted to get to the end of that paragraph. And then I, it told me to go to somewhere else. And I went somewhere else. And then I fought some monster or whatever. I downloaded Sunless Sea as soon as I could get the beta. I started playing it. And as soon as the first, I started, you know, I started clicking on the boxes. And as soon as I started moving the ship around and a box came up, I wanted to click on the button so that I could keep moving my ship. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm fascinated uh, by the sort of the way that telling stories with words, when you put another another mechanic in there, how it changes your relationship to the words. How do you guys go about sort of solving that problem? I'm not sure we have solved it yet. Um, it's it's a, it's a complex one. I think the key to it is. Um, making the words a reward, which is something that we found worked very well in Fallen London as well. Mm-hmm. And you often find with Fallen London that because people have a sort of a certain lag about reading, particularly on screens, uh, that um, a story will be introduced very quickly and the branches will be very quick and easy. And then if you succeed, then you'll get a lot of text. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that way you sort of condition, um, condition's a strong word, but you, uh, you suggest that uh, you know, the narrative, the story, that reading is, is a reward. Uh, and I think we're we're sort of working on doing similar things with Sun the Sea. Does that make sense, Alexis? It, it does, and I think you know exactly the experience Bruce described. And thank you, by the way, for saying all those extremely nice things. Um, but exactly the experience that you described about um, uh, wanting to get moving again because the text got in your way was something uh, that we worried about. And a few years ago. Um, Emily Shorts, the um, insanely talented IF author, um, I dragooned her onto a, a course about writing interactive narratives, and we looked at our notes beforehand of what we're going to teach and the list of things we wanted to say. And the thing we'd both written at the top of our list was something along the lines of don't write too many words, because <laughs> I think partly because games have this kind of chippy younger brother thing going on where they they really want to be art there's always a temptation to write the next great british or american novel inside the game and uh people generally want the words to get out of the way so they can get on with things so so famously in world of warcraft you used to have to wait until the quest text had finished fading in before (laughs) you could continue because they were damn certain you you know they they paid some guy to write all this text and it was really important (laughs) you needed to know why you were bringing them uh 300 more tales and, and they were going to make you sit through it before they did it. And everybody hated it. In the end, they took it out. And, you know, I, I, I'm in games of the story. I'm, I'm pathological about it. But I got very impatient with the precise detail of exactly why the miller wanted me to bring him a bag of gold for the, the, the 50th time. And but, um, we, we did a lot of work at the beginning of Four London about trying to ensure that people read the text. Um, and we played with, with fonts, colours, layouts... Um, we tried hiding quality messages until we're done. And, and, and if people don't want to, they just won't. So you need to write short and you need to ensure that you you get out of the player's way. And you need to bear in mind that this is going to be a marinade they'll soak in rather than uh, just a, a, a shot they'll toss up at the beginning. So the writing is, you know, maybe you'll skip through uh, that text uh, five times. And then maybe the sixth time, when you stop to scratch your nose, you'll, 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 you'll pay attention uh, to the third sentence down and realise it references something else. Um, and the, the choice of the quality names is, is, you know, a writing exercise. The descriptions you'll read on a mouse over uh, 20 minutes in. All, all this stuff is, um, is is still part of the craft. And I'm not, it's not like we fixed it and different people have different reactions. But years ago, somebody said to us, I don't read all the words in your games, but I like that they're there. It makes me feel like somebody's uh, put some effort into it. And, you know, that's not my highest aspiration. <laughs> uh, what strikes me about uh, 
the difference between, of course, Fallen London and Sunless Sea is in Fallen London, you had the great luxury of their being, and I don't mean this to sound as denigrating as it probably sounds, but in Fallen London, you had the luxury of there being no real gameplay. Fallen London was basically snippets of text that I, as a player, assembled, um, and they were slowly doled out over time. It was kind of like reading a book a, a little bit at a time, and I didn't have to fuss with things like Although there were die rolls in the background, I didn't have to fuss with things like die rolls or managing resources, even though there was some of that. But the gameplay in Fallen London was the text. Um, and, and I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm really eager to see, and I'm going to wait until you guys finish it, uh, in Sunless Sea, is how you deal with folding that text in with actual gameplay. You know, like, like Bruce is saying, he's wanting to move his ship. That's the gameplay there. And so you guys are having to get people to read things while they're playing the game, which wasn't really the case in Fallen London in a way. Um. Well, if you look at something like FTL, uh, where you also you have to do a bit of reading from time to time, but it's uh, it's pretty much always a treat. And I think that's partly because it's, uh, it almost always hands out goodies once you make a decision, or at least uh, you know it gives you something interesting to think about. And it's short and it's pithy. Um, I think as long as there's an agency there and as long as it generally feels like the player is choosing to read something, then I you know, I, I think that can fold into the experience and be part of it. I, I definitely agree with you, Paul, but I think then we get into a situation, because I imagine this probably happens even in FTL a lot, where it's like World of Warcraft, where people are playing and they're just playing the mechanics, you know, they're they're in t- there for the gameplay and they're ignoring the text. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, that's something that in Fallen London... As Alexis mentioned, the guy who says, I don't always read the text, I appreciate it's there. You know, if you're playing Fallen London and you're not reading the text, I would argue you're not playing Fallen London. Um, but with something like FTL, and I presume Sunless Sea, there will be those people who just click that box away and probably don't even read it, who are just there for the mechanics. Um, well, you know, that's fine. I mean, <laughs> so, we, the, um, however you want to enjoy it, it's cool. But um, I think particularly when we're asking people to make decisions, it's to, they're going to get into the habit of uh, wanting to know what the, uh, what the information is before they make that decision. So what Bruce was saying about wanting to get rid of that uh, text box, um, I can, that, that must be like a new challenge for you guys because, and I say this without meaning to in any way insult Fallen London, but in a way Fallen London doesn't have any gameplay. It has the luxury of being strictly text. You know, if you're playing Fallen London to just amass the little resources, you know, if you're playing Fallen London to not read the text, to not care about what the next paragraph is that's going to be delivered to you, uh, you're, you're basically, you might as well not play, I feel. Like Fallen mm-hmm. London is, the text is front and center, it's your main reward, it is the thing that exists, it's the, it's the closest claim I think Fallen London has to a gameplay mechanic, because otherwise it's just basically rolling dice. Now you guys are having to share text with actual gameplay, um, and I can imagine, like, I, I, I'm eager to see that. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that I haven't played the beta yet, is because just as I wouldn't want to, for instance, read a Cormac McCarthy novel before he's done writing it, uh, I kind of want to let you guys finish laying in whatever narrative you're going to share with the gameplay of, of a kind of a roguelike. Um, so that's got to uh, provide some unique challenges for you guys, is how do we balance gameplay with what we've traditionally done? Uh, and on that note, actually tell me a little bit about how you're finding that, this idea of actually having to make a more conventional game than just a text-based game like Fallen London. 
So the, the the upside of it is, and this is going to be one of the like one of those bits on DVD extras where people say how amazing Kenneth Branagh was to work with and all the rest of it is. Um, <laughs> Paul and Liam have both brought stuff to the table uh, that I wouldn't have been able to do, and I composed the Maribeth as well. So Fall in London has always been the words dragging the art behind them, and it's been a much more synthetic experience uh, this time round. So, so Paul will draw something that I will riff off, um, where I was much less ready to surrender creative control in the past. So that's, that's great, and the text has to step a bit back, um, and I, um, I, 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 my feathers uh, have been ruffled slightly by that, but mostly it's just kind of awesome. Um, in terms of, of, of challenges, I, I was saying earlier, I don't know if I, um, I cut out, um, that people dip in and out of the text. Uh, so the fact that they don't absorb it all on first uh, reading, it can be the same way that the they don't notice um, that there are bats swarming around the towers of Wolfstack docks or that the Echo Bazaar has tentacles sprawling uh, over the dockside until the fifth or the sixth time they come back to the docks. So all these things are different elements that people pay attention to one bit at a time. So it's, it's making it one, one strand of the braid. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, go ahead, go sorry. ahead Paul. Yep. Uh, I was going to say the actually the way we write stories uh, actually fits quite well with this sort of uh, exploring an archipelago uh, thing that we've got going yes. on the sea because story tends to happen on islands, uh, which is actually a, is weirdly similar to what happens in Fall in London is you might experience one storyline and then pop over to Bale Garden and experience another, uh, and you know how you get between. Um, these these separate sort of nodes of story has always been kind of the player's affair up until now, uh, but now how you get between it is is with the gameplay and the sailing in Sunless. So it's actually quite a good fit for what we do. And so this this is the thing that the, the type really of this is um, the Odyssey or um, the Irish and Rama stories where you get um, a, a stretch of, of sea voyage which nothing happens followed by a furious bout of incident. And one of the other advantages of working like this that I love is in full London for years, every time you want to pace the story out, we either have to add grind to it, which is satisfying on one level and frustrating on another and drives a lot of people away inevitably, or I have to kind of hand tool a mechanic into the story. And now we've basically got pacing baked into the game. There's an actual game mechanic in between bits of story without needing to do any extra writing, which is unbelievable. It's like learning how to fly. Hmm. And that's one of the things I'm excited too about Alexis is, is as much as I like to fall in London, man. If I never have to like wait for my actions to recharge, I'm okay with that. Uh, yeah, you can so, pay money for that. Oh gosh, <laughs> I guess that is the form of gameplay there in Fall in London. But I mean, fair enough. But uh, yeah, like I'm, I'm so looking forward to getting to experience a complete narrative with as much time as I'm willing to sit down and spend with the game rather than this artificial sense of only having a certain number of actions. Um, and to be fair, by the way, you guys have done a great job of, of pulling that, of making that matter less and less over the life of Echo Bazaar and later Fall in London. Um, so I, so, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And it, it, you know, it, it hurts us too, really. We, um, at the beginning, we were just so terrified people would run out of story that we put in a whole bunch of barriers. 
Uh, I don't know if that's happening. I'm losing. Yeah, I'm losing. Yeah, and making it easy to get through. But level that works for everyone and makes us a bit of cash is is, is really hard. Uh, Alexis, I'm afraid we lost all of that. Um, oh, damn it! You're, you're cutting out. Uh, so let's see. Uh, let me just make a note. Uh, so go back. Um, sorry to make you do this, but can you go back to <laughs> to what you basically said after after I mentioned that you've done a good job of cutting the action limits out? Because uh, we only heard like a couple of words out of that. Um, so um, when we first wrote for London. Uh, we would just terrify people would run out of content and, and a lot of the heavy grind at the beginning was because we wanted to make sure people didn't burn through everything. And then, of course, we realised that if people, you know, belatedly, if people read something they like, they will wait around for there to be more of it. Uh, and over time, we built up this gigantic bank of story. So now we're, we're, we're calming down the grinding, we're lowering the barriers, we're making it uh, less aggressive, but it's still obviously a free-to-play game. And I think text on the web is very, very hard, as newspapers uh, have found, to make people pay pay for. And if it wasn't fundamentally a free game, I don't think it would still be here now. But it is very, very liberating to be able just to give somebody a hit of gaming mm-hmm. in a few hours, because we know, you know, this, this is our, our number one complaint, and I do understand it. I don't play many. Uh, free to play, start building a castle, wait six hours, games myself. <laughs> uh, are, have you, what kind of, pro- have you run into any situations where you're wanting to tell stories in Sunless Sea and you're having to uh, adapt them to the gameplay, like to, to just being on an island? One of the things I love in Fallen London is all the cross references, the delayed payoffs. Like, I'll make a decision now, and then later on a new story that will pop up and reference that decision from earlier. Uh, are you, what sort of problems or challenges are you facing adapting some of those great payoffs in Fallen London to what you're doing in Sunless Sea? Well, there are a lot of things. Sorry, Alex. I was going to say that um, Alex has gotten used to writing things that are basically impossible to draw. Um, which, By the way, you know, Paul, I want to interrupt too because I got to say, Fallen London being so text-based, I, I I feel for what you must have gone through at times. <laughs> like, how am I going to draw a little picture to go with this storylet? I mean, I can only imagine how many times you must have sat there staring at some, however you work, canvas, thinking, what on earth has Alexis given me? You know, I've got to give some visual representation of this. Uh, yeah, I think the high point was when he started imagining colors. Uh, there are several imaginary colors in Fallen London. Uh, <laughs> So I sort of get the direction that Cosmogon is, is sort of slightly purplish. And I'm just going, okay, fine. Make it look like a colour that doesn't actually exist. Dude, um, it's orange. Everyone knows Cosmogon is mostly orange. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, so, yeah, sometimes, I mean, because we're used to these grand flights of fantasy, uh, um, Alex will casually say, okay, so can we make a, a cobweb that extends over the entire ocean and have animated spiders going up and down? Uh, and I'm like, no, actually, <laughs> Um, so yeah, that, that, that's. Um, but from your direction, Alexis, I don't know. Is, is the art restricted? Story uh, a, a little. I mean, um, I'm conscious in a way I'm not in full London that if I'm writing something happening on an island, I need to make sure that I can't just invent a building or a cove uh, or a, um, a a stretch of ocean with spider webs and animated spiders cutting up and down it, uh, and. Um, I have to avoid spoilers. Um, there's a couple of incidents where the landscape of the island 
does change where where things you can see from the boat do change as a result of actions in the game people who played the beta will know one of the ones i'm talking about bruce will know i think mm. and um you know that that a couple of people have picked up on and in the longer term we have got some tech actually to have narrative effects in the game so if the story state changes uh, the look of the island will change as well but that that always requires extra resource to do and, and it's not something i can just dash off in a sentence and a half anymore well i think specifically alexis of things like in fallen london if i make a choice or if i uh uncover some story beat you guys can later feed me a card you know you can make sure that i then see the follow-up i can imagine something in uh sunless sea where maybe you want to introduce a story beat about a crew member but then i get the crew member killed because i presume there's that's part of the, the gameplay or where i don't sail to a specific island or something like you're having to cede a lot of narrative control to the gameplay uh, you can't railroad players and, and, and assume they're going to do certain things or have certain assets. You know, it seems like the gameplay could compromise some of the way you want the story to unfold. You have to basically. Well, actually, that's kind of okay um, because that's that's kind of our thing. So, um, you know, I reckon about 200k words in the game um, by the end of it, and I reckon players will probably see um, uh, double. Uh, you know, on, on a complete playthrough, they might see 100k of those words. And the game is written to be replayed with different captains in a different ways and with different um, characters. So, this is one of the things that people talk about with, with interactive narrative is you don't um, just experience it once. You, you pass through it several times, then you discuss what you've done in it, then you ask other people what they've done on it so it's a social thing as well it extends backwards and forwards in time and it extends in space all the rest of it so so it's, it's, it's back to um paul mentioned a spider web and it's, it's much more like traversing a spider web you scuttle around it and you suck up juicy little flies here and there so i've distributed you know potentially hundreds of flies around the web and the fact that only players only get to eat one fly or 20 flies on any given playthrough of course if i write something i think is good and people don't ever see it um that's a shame. But the, the upside of that is somebody will say on a, um, a, a, um, a forum sometime, oh, my God, you mean you didn't see what happens if you actually eat the genial magician? And people go, no way, and they go back and play it. So, so it, 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 it really has an upside as well. Yeah. Uh, tell folks, uh, let's, so I, as I mentioned, I'm reluctant to jump in until it's done. What, it, what will folks who play the, the beta right now what are they getting and what are they not getting? They're getting a small percentage of the map, around 20, 25% of the map, I think. Um, they're getting... Uh, well, I, I, have, I have a graph that shows all this. Actually, Alex, you're going to be better at answering this than me. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're getting a small percentage of the map, about 20, 25%. Um, they're getting a, a, a little bit less than that of the story, although it's actually about up there with the story now. Um they're getting most of the mechanics. Uh, we're tuning the mechanics. We've got an update to you next week that's going to make a, a couple of substantial differences. The basic feel of the game, um, I think, is there. And combat's kind of rudimentary, but people seem to think it's in a good place and the, the basics of it are working. Um, and, but the, the, the key thing is uh, content that's missing. And this is why... Uh, early access um, made sense for us in the end, because we were 
really panicking about getting all the content out for the, the release date and having to, to compromise. And this just allows us to sprawl a little bit more. Um, we've got a roadmap now to take us through to the end of August, and um, it, it makes sense to add to the edges of the map as you go, right? People are exploring it. They can keep on pushing out. And we've got uh, a schedule for stories so that some stories will be completable by the player at various stages in the uh, in early access. So, you know, I, I understand um, people wanting to stay out of early access games, especially story-based ones. Uh, I do that myself a lot. I think it hurts less with this because you can actually complete the game right now. And hopefully it's like people want to replay and so they'll see additional stories and additional places as they go through, especially if they're playing multiple captains, which they probably do because the game will tend to, to kill you. That's that another thing we don't have at the moment, actually, which is worth mentioning, which is we don't have the, um, the shuffling, changing map yet, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the next things to come, which ties back into what we were talking about earlier with sometimes you experience some stories, sometimes you experience another. So, you know, every time you sail out, you might find a different island. Uh, so the geography is uh, subject to the same sort of rules as the, as the story. So that's one of the specific challenges, actually, for us, is, is that for London, we've got this gigantic bank of law um, and some extremely passionate fans. And um, uh, every time uh, Paul draws something uh, that I'm aware contradicts law, uh, we have an absurdly high-stakes conversation about whether it should go in or not. And then we realise that even the passionate players have played for um, a week and not noticed that Hunter's Keep is northeast rather than south of Fulham, London, and we realise it wasn't such a big deal after all. But um, but some stuff just doesn't work in, in outside the context of Fallen London, so we've had to, to, to modify it. Uh, Alexis, is there a Fallen London Bible? Like, is, it, is this stuff written somewhere? Is it locked in your head? Uh, is, there, is there some... Uh, is, is there some... Does Paul have some recourse to challenge things that you believe about it? How does Fallen London exist and these things about where one city is in relation to another, uh, who's alive, who's dead, who does what to whom? Uh, how is all of this tracked? So we have, yes, yeah, we, we have a, a, uh, a, a number of documents, but the key stuff is we have a, an absurdly large spreadsheet with secrets sort of uh, from basic to absurdly esoteric, um, uh, along from left to right. Um, but a spreadsheet is like um, is like code that isn't executing, um, uh, uh, unless it actually is in somebody's head, uh, uh, unless somebody's conscious of it. it. It can't affect stuff, and only so much stuff can fit in my head. So we, we do have a kind of a, a team um uh, a, a team hive mind that maintains <laughs> different details of it, and um, one of the, our, our last hire, um, who I brought in mostly as, a, as an analyst, but also as a, a content maintainer, um, it isn't a coincidence that we hired um, one of our most um, careful and meticulous fans in the community because um, I, I thought, and it's proven the case, that he can help keep balls in the air. Mm-hmm. We do have Fallen London itself as well, which is um, mm. which is a very useful Bible because we can oh, search that, all of it. Yeah, that, that, that is the other thing. We have a million words of playable text, which is, is searchable. <laughs> so I can just go down there and look at uh, what what triggers what. Well, tell me this, because I'm, I'm curious about uh, – you keep talking about the story. Um, mm. I had an experience uh, recently or a few months ago where I went to um, 
there was a there was a talk at our uh, community city library, uh, and they had some developer game developers and board game designers and everything. They kept talking about story, um, and I felt like everything that they were saying that were they were talking about story really wasn't story. It was so much a setting, and I think that setting is really important. And the things that you're talking about, you know, what what where something is and, and where a building may be in relation to some other building or a city in other, some other city um, and keeping sort of the, um, the canon and um, making it all consistent. Um, that's all setting, though, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, um, it's important that you create this world that people feel is, is uh, internally consistent, but that, that's not really so much story, is it? Uh, it it's no. Uh, and there's... Um, so a couple of things the interactive fiction community there's a certain amount of debate about what counts as story and what counts as backstory and any game you come into there are going to be things you can affect and things that you can't affect and the things that you can't affect a setting but they can still be tremendously relevant for things you can affect and give them the meaning so um, I think you know one of the short, one of the ways of describing setting is it's just the thing that makes you give a damn about what happens in the game. It's, it's mm-hmm. the context and the pressures to do particular things and to mm-hmm. to care mm-hmm. about what's happened. Um, Bioshock. Uh, what people remember from Bioshock isn't um, the individual choices they made in what's basically quite a a limited narrative. It's the larger thematic context of the city and of the characters and the things they've done in many cases before you've got there, in some cases after you got there. So, yeah, you know, there's other stuff that happens besides um, setting the story, and that stuff is really important, but it's harder to nail down. And I think as well... Here we get to the, the point where it's it's always tending to be a, a bit pious about the importance of meshing gameplay mechanics with narrative, uh, which we still do, all of us, with varying degrees of effectiveness. And a lot of the stuff that happens that isn't setting, that is story, happens down there in the gears of the interaction of, of the player with the game mechanics. It's the stuff they do and the stuff they care about, the stuff they think, the stuff they remember, the stuff they talk to their friends about, the choices they make, sometimes the consequences those choices have. So, all, but, but all those things, they only give a damn about because they happen in the context of the setting. And, and the setting can be mechanical as well as narrative. Um, Pathfinder, which um, uh, I know Tom plays, and if you play it, Bruce? Uh, yes. I mean, the, so, the board game you're talking about. It, the, yeah, it, the, yeah, the the uh, the card game, I guess. Um, yeah. So I really don't know or care the details of the Rise of the Rune Lords campaign because they're not on the cards anyway. It looks quite interesting and, and, and quite menacing, but but it's it's mostly um, pretty pictures and some some flavour details. But I do care about. Um, uh, the larger context, the resources, and whether my character lives or dies at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, um, that, that's that's a context put in there to make me give a damn about what I do in the game. But I would argue that the, that the everything about the cards 
the drawings on the cards, um, the text on the cards, even though it's kind of immutable. I mean, that's all setting, right? I mean, even the way the cards look, even the way the, the cards look in your hand, the physical qualities of the cards, I would say that that is part of the setting. You're right, and I veered off slightly from my point there. So, so absolutely, there's the the, the actual narrative setting. There's the um, uh, I, I can never remember. There's two terms in Russian formalism, um, and I can remember which one is, is which. So I won't embarrass myself by trying. But there's one that specifically means um, uh, that the, the um, diegetic context of the um, of the setting, the stuff that, that you've been told happens or is going to happen, and there's the flavour and the art and the um, uh, the phrases that make sense and the, the things it's touching on, all those are setting as well. And the mechanics are also setting. So, you know, Pathfind, absolutely, the fact that I um, I get a sense of menace from certain cards, the fact that I have a aesthetic experience from manipulating the cards, that that's, that's setting. Um, and also the fact that it tracks my actions, uh, that I know how it's going to track my actions and I know how that's going to unlock stuff, that, that is kind of mechanical setting as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cards are great. We love cards. We, we can't get away from cards because they're, they're tiny little packets of story. It's, it's, it's like the um, uh, the most economical and effective way to put a packet of story um, into somebody's mind is to give them uh, a, a piece of uh, card with a picture and some text on it um, and then to give them two or three of them, put them next to each other and, and bang, you've got a story. There are whole, uh, you know, there's a whole subgenre of card games built around building narratives out of cards but next to each other right and they're sort of self-contained so you sort of create that expectation you can you're only going to get this much story but you just keep getting that much i'm not sure about all this separating story and setting thing Mm. speaking as the guy speaking as the guy who does the setting you know um i mean for instance uh there are lots of people who would argue that something like dark souls has a story uh but it's told entirely i think well, almost entirely through environmental um, art and storytelling. Or, you know, uh, Bethesda is very good at this. You can, you, you'll find um, in Fallout or in Skyrim, you'll find tableaus that indicate that a story has happened. But they're just in the positioning of a, you know, of a body or a bloodstain and so on and so forth. I, I, th- I think, I mean, it's separating them seems uh, anti-intuitive to me. I think they're all part of the same thing. Hmm. Well, I think the problem with the word is, is just this word story. It's, you know, I like art or, or porn or politics or um, uh, morality. It's one of those words that, that is, is so stretched in so many different directions that um, it, it's almost taxonomically useless. But there is, yeah, I, I think setting as the things that a player can't change once they're in the game and the other stuff they can change once they're in the game, whether that stuff is is is, is purely things that happen in their own head or whether it's a complex branching narrative or whether it's gameplay mechanics, there is that distinction. Well, this I, I, is not, not something that's that's uh, unique to inter- interactive games, though, right? Or um, to, to interactive stories. Because... It's not, but but, it's, but it's, it is most apparent in them because that's where people can press against the walls and notice that they can't change things. Right. And and they feel that they're, I mean, the sort of central experience of playing an interactive game, which is, you know, not entirely true, but it's supposed to feel like you're telling your own story. Right. But I mean, uh, it, okay. And I, you know, if you're clearly not, you know. I think a lot of times there's um, a misguided emphasis on story, meaning I as a player 
something happened to my character or my character did something. And, and some games are better than others at doing that. But I also feel that that's, you know, what, what you can dismiss as setting can still be important story bits. I and, didn't uh, dismiss, I'm not dismissing. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, what I'm you're distinct, what what you're what you're setting apart is setting versus story. Right. I, I think setting and, and whether you dismiss, I'll just say dividing or whatever, or 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 uh, calling out as distinct from story. And and I, I want to, you know, someone mentioned Bioshock before. And, and Bioshock Two uh, is as far as you as the player. I think it was Alexis who said, yeah, you make some very limited choices. You know, there are, after every boss battle, you make a choice: do you uh, spare or uh, or punish the the character. You know, do you kill this person or spare him? And the choices become increasingly difficult, and they do some great writing around them. But for some people, the story of Bioshock 2 is those three, I think it's four choices that I made. Did I kill boss one? Did I kill boss two? Did I kill boss three? Did I kill boss four? Those four beats, and that's it. And, and that's what some people think of as story, whereas setting is all the stuff about what happened in Rapture. Um, and, you know, Rapture is the setting and, and this cool art deco look with these, these masked villains who are out of, you know, a Stanley Kubrick movie. All that is setting. But I, I want to, for me, when I play Bioshock 2, those totally bleed together because part mm. of the story of Bioshock 2, for instance, isn't just what choices I made at the bosses. It's it's discovering. For me, story is learning something I didn't know. It, it's going from being ignorant, not in a bad way, but just not knowing something about events to knowing something about those events. And the storyteller dictates how I learn those things. And for instance, in Bioshock 2, one of the first bosses is a, a woman named uh, Grace Holloway, and she's uh, she's modeled after Billie Holiday. She's a jazz singer, and she's one of the first bosses that you have to deal with because she, this little girl you're looking for, uh, uh, Eleanor, she she uh, was instrumental in what happened to this little girl. And so you decide, do I punish or do I spare her? But part of the story in Bioshock 2 is discovering why. Grace Holloway did what she did, is discovering that she was a childless woman and that there was this maternal sensibility and that she wasn't just a toady to the villain. Uh, that, to me, even though it's not my character, even though it's arguably part of the setting because it's just another citizen of rapture, that, to me, is story. And that gets to what Fallen London is doing so well, is that even if my decisions aren't folding, are, are only affecting how many echoes I get or how many units of glim I earn... Uh, Alexis is telling me stories about things that happened in this setting. Uh, and, you know, the, these stories can have, you know, they're revelations. They're quite literally revelations because they're things that I didn't know. Um, and, and so even though it's in the setting, even though, you know, and, and a more pedestrian example of this, Bruce, is, uh, you know, this kingdom fell down because the, the necromancer invited a dragon in and it destroyed the kingdom. And so now it's full of orcs and you're fighting orcs. I mean, mm -hmm. that's pedestrian, that's ridiculous, that's mm -hmm. setting, and I don't mm -hmm. care about it. But, mm -hmm. you know, Grace Holloway, you know, why this woman took in this child and what it meant to her and what it mm -hmm. had to do with her situation in life, that's cool, that matters to me. That that has this really cool, relatable thing, you know, a motherless, uh, a childless mother. Um, and even though it's so, setting, that's a hugely important story to me. Um, I, I, so I, I don't disagree with that at all. Um so I, I go back to this idea of setting as the thing that makes you give a damn about the rest of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all, all you're actually doing, all you're actually in heavy air quotes doing in Bioshock there, um, is killing a, a, a five dozen uh, splicers 
mm-hmm. um, breaking the Grace Holloway's room, uh, looking around at things in Luke Lintz, listening to a can conversation, mm-hmm. and leaving. But because it has this rich story and because it has um, a big reveal that reconfigures your understanding of it, obviously what's going on inside your head, as you point out, is is, is much richer and much more interesting. And but but it, it is it is the setting that that, that allows you to, to to do that that supports your experience. It's and specifically it's it's a context for your decision, isn't it? I, yeah. I remember playing Fable Three, um, and I was getting really annoyed with it because right at the opening of the game, literally five minutes in, it presented me with a kill character A or kill character B option, <laughs> uh, and I had no idea who these people right. were. And of course, whichever option I picked, I was immediately made to feel terrible. Uh, and it's like, it's all very well, but, you know, give, give me half an hour to understand why I should kill A or B. And, you know, I'll feel legitimately bad if I feel it was the wrong decision. And The Walking Dead is really interesting for this as well. I think The Walking Dead gives you a lot of context and then asks you to make a lot of decisions, which may not actually matter. But what it's asking you for is a point of view. It's asking you to engage. Right. Except so Paul has kindly segued to my absolute pet hobby horse on interactive narrative, which is choice and consequence, because... It drives me nuts when people focus too hard on consequence, and I, I don't think we should let this conversation pass without ritually genuflecting in the direction of The Walking Dead, which is obviously one of the finest pieces of interactive narrative ever committed to, to Silicon. But one of the criticisms is that it plays through more or less the same on a second um, go-through. And, and um, it would have been richer in a particular way if it had had more varied consequences, but that, that isn't the point. And every time you do something in an interactive story that um, th- where you engage with it, you have a sense of choice, you have that fulcrum moment before you do something, where you are having an experience before you've even touched the controller, and uh, maybe, you, you, maybe it happens in your head, maybe you talk to somebody about it, we used to talk about fag break um, uh, moments, um, uh, where, you know, something that would, um, Paul being a, a journalist and therefore a smoker, um, be sufficiently engaging, it would make you go outside to have a cigarette and think about what you're going to do. So you have this, this choice thing. And later, you can have the consequence thing where you see what has happened. And that can also be really powerful and effective. And, of course, if you had a series of choices which never had consequences, it would feel like a cheat. But the, the one without the, the, the consequence without the choice, the consequence without the choice being interesting and important, is completely trivial. Uh, it, it might as well be arbitrary. And you also have, I think, that that moment of actually action with the story, um, which we, we like to call complicity, um, where you experience something as you shoot Grace Holloway or as you you holster your gun, um, which is I think a little bit distinct from either the choice or the consequence. And, and, and you can you can't build a game just out of choice and complicity. If you don't have any consequence at all. Um, then, then it, it, I say you can't. Of course, you can. There are thing, things that do work, but without any kind of consequence, it tends to feel a little bit hollow. That consequence could just be an in-game death that makes you reload, or not getting any more ammo, or not getting enough glim, or noticing that you've got a lower reward, or whatever. But, but it is absolutely the choice is is, is as rich as the consequence. And, and I find, for me, it ultimately comes down to. Uh, you know, mechanically, a lot of this stuff is the same, and for me, a lot of it comes down to how good is the writing. Like, it, it takes a game, 2K Marin's Bioshock 2, they made me care, you know, whereas in a lot of the Bethesda games, where there's supposedly some meaningful choice or consequence in the Civil War and Skyrim, I, I don't really care. 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make a choice and then they'll unfold the story for me. But without better writing, uh, it, without it being more meaningful to me, it just becomes a mechanical exercise, like Paul talking about in Fable, do you kill this person or, or spare this person? Uh, and he doesn't care one way or the other because he doesn't know what the importance is supposed to be. And actually, for that reason, uh, I'll be a dissenting opinion. I'm not a fan of Telltale's Walking Dead games. Uh, because I think the writing kind of falls apart. I think it's a lot of derivative stuff. It's super cliche. It's nothing I haven't seen or done, or, or yeah, seen or done before in another zombie movie or other games. Uh, I, I like the way they, they draw it out episodically. Uh, they do some great character animation, but, uh, like dialogue trees just don't do it for me anymore. Um, I think, I think that's, uh, uh, Partly, uh, it sounds like you're tired of both the content of the former. I think some of the actual execution is is just very good. There's a, a, a conversation I always remember in the very first episode um, where somebody asks Lee, um, "Did you and your wife um, ever have children? Um, you know, you have time." And he, and he just says, "You know." Um, and the other character says, but you wanted to, and he goes, eh. And I know that in some games, and some of them games that I love, that would have been a five-layer dialogue tree where somebody says, of course, we always wanted children, but with all the stresses of our two children. If it had been a Mass Effect game, for instance, it would have all been spelled out in exhaustive detail, right? <laughs> Well, we need to resolve this because Alexis has already cost me money with his uh, Fable Lands recommendation. So now I was about I was poised on clicking on this whole Telltale Games thing, uh, and now Tom's trying to shoot me down here. No, Bruce, um, hate it. I, I know you well enough, uh, and, and even though I mean I, I appreciate what they're doing, and I understand why a lot of people like it. But Bruce, I can say here and now, and I think you can get the first episode of the first season for free. Okay. Get that and uh, play it. It'll take you. Probably less than an hour. I guarantee you, you will come to me and you'll say, Tom, you're right, I hated it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's fair enough. So, um, I, I'm curious um, about the, um, since we were talking about the setting and uh, Fall in London and and, um, and now Sunless Sea, I mean, are, you guys really, the, the idea of this, this space that you kind of created is, is fascinating to me. And just the, I love the, you know, in the beta, I like looking at the gazetteer images. I mean, that kind of makes me weird. Um, but, <laughs> Not uh, at all. It doesn't. It doesn't. I, I like Paul's art so much. Ones. I had some of it tattooed on my leg. That's how much <laughs> I like gazetteer images. So, I mean, it, but that's part of you know that's part of what's interesting about your concept for me and, and the Fall in London thing. And I'm, I'm uh, I haven't played Fall in London in a while, but I'm, now that we've talked about it, I think I need to go back and, and do it again. I certainly will. Um, but, um, you know, it's this sense of just wanting to inhabit this kind of imaginative space where London's in some sort of, you know, cavern and, and there are bats everywhere and there's a sorrow spider. I, just, I love the idea. I mean, there's so many things that you guys do with just simple language, like there's a sorrow spider. To me, that, that is incredibly uh, disturbing um, and evocative at the same time. Um, and, and I'm, I'm really wondering, I mean, I haven't actually played a, a whole lot of the, the beta, the Sunless Sea beta, because I keep playing the same things over and over, um, because I keep starting as different captains, I'm not sure why, except that I get, keep getting killed. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I kind of, I'm kind of feeling like, uh, you know, 
we, this whole idea of this map that I'm exploring, um, another problem, I don't know if it's a problem that I found, is that because I want to inhabit this, this imaginative space that we just discussed, I kind of want to get into like there's like a lighthouse or something, and I kind of want to go into the lighthouse. I want to you know because you're showing me the lighthouse, right? If it were just a text thing like in Fall in London, you were talking about it, I'd be like, oh great, you know whatever. Let's look at the thing, and I would imagine it in my head. But as soon as you show me the lighthouse, I'm trying to scroll in, like you know, well let me go in the lighthouse. How do you deal with stuff like that? Uh, <laughs> um. Thinking. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's it's an issue. It's it's. Paul, do you want to talk a bit about it? Because this touches on art, I think. Yeah, no, I think. I mean, um, our, our, our position on it basically is that um, land is where you do stuff that you do in Fallen London. You play storylets, you look at pictures, uh, you make choices, and so on and so forth. Uh, simply because you know, if we were to try and represent the entire. Um, fantasy on land and on sea with landing parties and I don't know land-based combat or something. I mean, then we would have a game that would be insanely enormous, and there's only there's only sort of five or six of us, so it's, it wouldn't be possible. Um, but also, there's this thing we found when we were doing Fall in London, kind of more or less by accident, but I think works quite well here, uh, which is back when we started, we really didn't have many images. Uh, because there was only me, and um, I was just learning how to do it. Uh, and so we'd have maybe 50 or 60 images in our library, uh, and hundreds and hundreds of stories to illustrate them with. And so we very quickly threw up our hands and said, well, okay, so the sorrow spider can also represent uh, despair, or um, you know, the uh, the raven that in the the white raven can be can mean flight, or it can mean you know a message for a friend, and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. And what we found eventually was that we were developing sort of more or less by accident a kind of tarot deck, mm. um, and that's actually proved really rich. And we now quite frequently put images that seem initially inappropriate with text just because they set off these weird resonances uh, and you get this sort of kind of Lynchian effect where you have, I mean, for instance uh, the starvation stories in Sun the Sea for the, at the moment have the image uh, which is used in Fallen for the appalling secret which is a guy uh, with his finger held up and a little bit of blood on his finger and it doesn't obviously say starvation uh, but it's a freaky image and it sort of stays in your head and it becomes a sort of totem for this particular menace. So I'm not sure if I'm really answering your question, but... Um, no, I, think, it, it, I don't know if it was a fair question, but just to, to get off the hook there a little bit. Well, what it made me wonder about uh, is it seems like you have to establish what the gameplay vocabulary is, what the player can and can't do when he's using the machine of gameplay that you've provided. Um, yeah. So having not played, I assume the rules are... You're just in the water, and you don't get to land and explore an island. It's just there for you to look at. Like it seems like the basic gameplay is uh, the uh, the light. Um, I guess light, food, um, resources. Well, depends, depends what you count as gameplay, because you do get to huh? explore. It. You just you get to explore it in text and pictures rather than moving into, into it. So if I see an island with a cool lighthouse on it, I can. There's something there that that I, I can like say, hey, I'm going to land here, and and you'll give me something to read about it. Yes, totally. If you can dock at it, there'll be a story there. Ah, what determines if I can dock at it? Is there like some sort of visual representation? You it, can it, will have, it will have a little pontoon, uh, and you okay. can go in and dock, and you can you can do all the things you can do in Elite. You know, you can buy and sell um, your items, you can upgrade your ship. But in addition to that, there will be stories in in every port. 
So, so we, 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 we work quite hard to find a consistent visual language for, for ports, so you, you generally have a good idea of what's a port or not. And in the end, I was very firm um, that we were just going to use a consistent architecture to indicate what was a port or not, and it just still wasn't quite obvious enough. So in the end, we put in a little pulsing glow as well, and we'll probably have to make the pulsing glow a little bit stronger because it's still possible to overlook. But in, you know, in principle, you can usually tell. But I think I know what Bruce is getting at as well, which is, is that um, you want to get out of your ship and walk around this thing. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to look at it from different angles. You want to be able to experience it as a physical object because it's right. been promised to you as a physical object. Mm-hmm. And again, I think this comes back to uh, the article you wrote about um, uh, the map of Greyhawk and its promise um, mm. of explorability, this sense that if there is an imagined space, you want to be able to to enter that space and to do something with it and in it. Um, mm. and while I was talking, I, I rudely Googled a, um, a Tolkien quote, um, and he says... Um, Part of the attraction of the Lord of the Rings is, I think, due to the glimpses of a large history in the background, an attraction like that of viewing far off an unvisited island or seeing the towers of a distant city gleaming in a sunlit mist. To go there is to destroy the magic unless new unattainable vistas are again revealed. <laughs> and that, I think, is the thing that, you know, we, we, we've promised you something, and if we actually delivered all the way on it, it would probably be a disappointment. So, so we do maintain a degree of tease. Hmm. And that has an intentional effect. You know, you look at a model village, it's charming. If you actually could treat and enter it, it would be quite dumb. It would be um, badly uh, moulded plastic inside with the screws still visible. <laughs> but hopefully what happens is that as you play the stories in the port, then your imagination takes over as it has a little hmm. number. Well, you know, it strikes um, me. Oh, go ahead, Paul. Sorry. No, no, no. That, that was basically it. Well, it strikes me. You guys have have. Uh, this is kind of the bed you've made that you have to lie in. If you had been doing a science fiction game with just a planet, like, like I don't think that people people have accepted if they're playing a science fiction game and they go to a planet. You're just going to show them the planet, and everything else is going to be abstracted. You know, you dock at the planet, and then there's a menu. Uh, if you're showing me a cool lighthouse on an island. I don't want just a menu. I want to know, you know, I want to go in that. I want to see what it looks like from the top of the lighthouse. If you just show me a planet, oh, it can be blue or it could be a green planet. It might be an orange planet. Uh, and then I'm not going to think, well, what does it look like on the surface of that planet? Why can't I go down there and swim in that planet's lakes? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, science fiction uh, games with this great empty void and little nodes, literal nodes that you can interact with, planets, uh, they kind of have a, a luxury of players not having those expectations. Yeah, that's a great we point. Know, we you, you're, you're subverting your, yourselves, guys, because I'm just looking at your Fallen London comics, which are spectacular, by the way. And I'm looking at this, this like, stalactite, or the stalagmite. No, wait, the stalactite's stalactite on top. Stalact- yeah. Stalagmites go up, right? Okay, good. And and it's, I mean, there's like a prison that's coming out of the, I don't know what it's coming out of, but it's, it's unbelievably great. And so it, it creates all this stuff. And now you're... Putting me there, and I, and and so it's. It, it, I have to say that your your uh, your skill at, at visual representation is hurting you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make so, a clear game, make less pretty. Stalactites Stal- Stal- have really been a thing, and yeah, you knew that exactly. So that's that's our archetypical 
phone and an image. And, and we chose. Ironically, it's the one thing we can't do in the game at exactly. all. Yeah. Right. So it tells, it tells you so much about the game when you look at it. It tells you um, that you're in a cave. It tells you it's not an entirely naturalistic setting because the prisoner's stalagmite is, is crazy. It tells you something about the kind of whimsy you're going to be dealing with. It tells you it's Victorian, all that sort of stuff. But as Paul says, we just can't do it. Um, doing a stalagmite is hard enough when it, you're, you're looking down on it from, from above. Doing a stalactite, which is somehow like above <laughs> you, behind the camera. Uh, uh, yeah. we, one of our stretch goals was a, um, um, which we didn't make, um, was a, a, an airship's add-on to Fallen London, mm. uh, to, to Sun and Sea, sorry. And we had some ideas about how we would have done that, but the more we looked at those ideas, the more relieved we are that we didn't have to carry it through. Interesting. Well, I, I want to—I I, kind of like road roughshod over Tom's point, but I think it's, Tom had an excellent point that uh, you know the nodes in science fiction uh, stories are these just sort of arbitrary points, and they, they have different colors. But then you're like, well, whatever, it's fine. Um, uh, unless the the story is on a planet where the planet's developed, like Dune, right? I mean, Dune is its own place, but um, um, in, in general, in science fiction games, I think that uh, you um, it's all about expectations, and you've created some yeah. really really high ones uh, with all the stuff you're doing. Are you going to do more Fallen London comics, by the way? Uh, yes, hopefully. Um, they they take a tremendously long time to make. Yeah. I can um, but they're enormous fun. So, yeah, we'd really like to. We've been looking around to see if we can get a publisher. One um, of the things to address with that, the, the pretty things that you can't um, access on land, is that uh, in the beta there are very few pretty things that you can't access in the sea, whereas there'll be a lot more when we're done. Because mm-hmm. uh, the sea is our, our main sort of, you know, uh, play area. Mm-hmm. So we've got a whole bunch of stuff to add to that with, you know, vortexes and monsters and sort of uh, drowned cities that you can sail over and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So uh, I mean, my job at the moment is making making the sea as interesting as the land. I, think. Hmm. Uh, I also hate y'all's trailer because... Uh, I wished that I could experience that eyeball thing in the context of the game. Don't tell me about eyeball things. Oh, whoops. (laughs) I (laughs) spoiled it for Bruce. Uh, (laughs) Well, you might be able to. to. (laughs) Well, no, it's too late. I can can only be startled by that once. I can experience that once the way it should be. It's a startling moment. I can only experience it once. I've already experienced it. So if it happens in the game, I'm like, yeah, I've seen that before. It was in the trailer. <laughs> I, be, I understand you're yes. damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's the sort of thing. Like that's a great little attention getter, uh, and it, it, you know, that's what the trailer is for. It's my own fault for watching the trailer when I already had given you my attention. Uh, yeah. That's the trailers. They put the best six moments of the film right in there, right. so you don't you go see the film. Yeah. Right. Um, is that, by the way, is that something? So that makes me wonder. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about how you are making uh, combat work at sea. So, um, in 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 Fallen London, you guys eventually did this combat thing with the uh, oh, dead gun. I apologize for not knowing the names. I want to say term- tournament of knives, but that's not right. Knife and candle. Right, 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 exactly, knife and camera. Yeah, how can I forget? That's a great image, by the way. So you added sort of a combat module at one point. Um, so here, you, you, of course, have a combat module from the beginning. Tell me how you guys, the creators of Fallen London, are making naval combat work. We're making it work by pretending it's an MMO combat. <laughs> so, Go ahead. Yep. Yeah, so, so um, it, it's... Um, you've got abilities with cooldowns. Um, and you've got 
three stats that you're watching the effects of those cooldowns on, and you've got interactions between the abilities. So it's you know it, it's um, quite like a kind of standard MO or CRPG model in that way. Uh, one of the things I think does make it feel a bit more naval, um, although it is so far from being a simulation as, as, as not to be uh, e- even in the same um, physics, um, is um, that th- th- there's a certain deliberateness about it. And this is one of the things we actually took away from um, FTL, is that FTL combat is quite stately, except when people are running around trying to put out fires. Um, because you are watching cooldowns, you have a few seconds to make a decision, and, and there's a rhythm to it. And we wanted that, that rhythm as well. So, so they, I, I think the sense that you've got to wait um, uh, to get into position for your next broadside, although it's completely abstracted and you're not turning the ship at all, the fact that you have to increase an enemy's illumination level so that you can see them to shoot at them, although we're not actually modelling where you two are on a map, um, does lend something of the sense of being out in the sea with something there in, in the dark. Monsters have a submergibility that will reduce their illumination, for example. Uh, so so there's, there's, there's that um, quality comes across. And it's, it's the, the cooldown model is a big part of it. Um, we're actually, in an upcoming patch, moving from a lag model to a lead model. So at the moment, you use an ability and then there's a cooldown. Uh, we're going to go back to our original design of you start using an ability and there's a wind-up to it, which, again, I think feels a bit more naval. You you have to try to, to get ready to do this thing. And then if you can see somebody else's action in the queue, you can um, react to that. But just the... Uh, we wanted to, to keep it um, at an almost card game-like level of, of abstractedness. Um, I was reading um, Aubrey Maturin as, as part of the research, well, obviously the, the period's wrong and it's all sailing ships, which, which we don't have, and the kind of intricacy and um, uh, ingenuity involved in detailed manoeuvres there just, just sort of made me despair of ever trying to put anything but the most... <laughs> high-level um, effects in the game. I think ideally it has the effect that you're standing on the bridge giving orders, uh, which are then carried out. So you're, you, you sort of have a, a, a not strategic, so much as tactical view of what's going on, rather than uh, pressing the fire button, as it were. Well, I think one of the really nice things about the model we use, um, which is effectively the story that model, story that some qualities from Fallen London, um, uh, tie into combat as well is that any quality in the game any narrative quality as well can affect what's going on in the story so one of the things we want to do in the next combat patch is um, uh, allow you to sacrifice your officers um, for moments of narrative advantage so if your hull drops below 50% up pops one of your more courageous officers who's prepared to leap into the maw of the beast and you know from your mouse over um, that you've got a chance of him surviving um, and a chance of him not surviving and if he doesn't survive um, uh, it's not clear that he's dead dead you just find his hat floating on the water afterwards so potentially he could return so you've got a little bit of that sense of um, to choose a, a, a classical reference um, mm. Spock dying for the sake of the many <laughs> but it's baked into the system um, and there's still some uncertainty about it and the narrative is is abstracted a bit to this kind of slightly symbolic level almost like the um, 
the, the way that we use and reuse art for, for symbolic effect as well. Uh, in Fallen London, when I have to make decisions, you give me uh, a... You, you tell me how difficult a task will be. Uh, and I seem to recall it, it, it was never a number, right? It was always an adjective in Fallen London. Is that correct? We, it is, but we, we caved. Um, you can now get a percentage um, if you, uh, like, drill down into it. Okay. Uh, is that something – so I presume then that's something that you're carrying over to Sunless Sea where yeah. math is more – because it's resource management, math is a bigger part. I can see specific percentages, correct? I can't remember, actually. Um, oh, in, uh, sunless, in Sunless Sea, you mean? You're, you're not sure if I'm going to be able to see the numbers? Uh Oh, no, I, I can't remember um, okay. who we do or not. I mean, it, it, the, the numbers are in there, but I forget how we expose them on the interface. But, like, if I wanted to be a guy who cared about, like, if I wanted to know whether or not I had a 70 or a 60% chance of the officer dying, if I send him Yeah, down, you can see that. You are catering to guys like me who want to math it, basically. Uh, yes, we are. Right. You, you, yeah. can, you can see the percentages on the news. Yes, yeah, so the combat interface is slightly different, yeah. Uh, well, actually, I meant specifically the narrative decisions. Like, will I be able to see how, – how do you feel about when a narrative decision comes up, letting somebody know whether or not the math is there? Because I always kind of respected that in Fallen London before when it was just an adjective. Like, this – you have this – you know, it's either a hard task, and I forget the specifics, but it was never just a straight-up percentage. You weren't just showing me the, the die roll I needed to make. You were kind of forcing me to deal with language, with adjectives. Um, so, so – we, 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 yeah, we, we compromised, but we didn't cave all the way. So you can get at that, but you do need to drill down to it. It's not immediately obvious. You, you can do an extra click and, and, and find it. And I, I honestly can't remember, uh, because we went back and forth on exactly this um, in Sunless Sea. I can't remember where, where the interface is right now, and I don't know if it'll stick with um, wherever we ended up. Um, but we, 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 again, we have a, um, an extra resort there as well, because we can, there are always two levels. Of randomness in any given narrative outcome. There's the, the difficulty test or the luck test, which we do tell the odds of, and then there can be a variant result as well, um, and the percent chance of that is, is always hidden. So that we can just give a, a cue up front and say there's a small risk, a large risk. But it, for London, the, again, we, we, we're kind of hoist by our own petard. The reason that we gave in in the end is because we said, well, it's the narrative that's important, it's not the details of minimaxing and, and mathing. And then we locked away large chunks of the narrative behind resource gates that would require weeks or months of play to get to. And if you end up getting uh, doing something optimally, you get to the narrative in three weeks instead of in five weeks. So we said you don't need to care about it unless you actually want to play our story. And then we look back on that decision and thought, okay, you know, if people do want to uh, to pull through it, we, we need to give them the ability to, to do it. It's like not giving a kid a knife and fork and then saying, you know, eat tidily. <laughs> well, why, one of the reasons I wonder about it with Sunless Sea, actually, let me just cut to the chase here. Does Sunless Sea, when I'm done with a game, because you mentioned you can finish it, uh, do I have a score? Do you evaluate how I did numerically? No. <gasps> well, well, ish. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> ish. Okay, explain. Because I'm curious, if it's a game that's replayable, I kind of want to quantify how well I did this time versus how well I did that time. And and what follows from that, a corollary of that is, if you're giving me a score, then I want numbers for everything I do. Always. <laughs> so, um, no, because, um, oh my God, um, uh, that would, would, would be uh, complicated and... and um, 
allowed to, yeah no i'm shy about exposing the guts of our, our narratives guide cloaking language but also that the, the um i wanted to add a bit of narrative flavor to the choice of ending so to start with, there are multiple victory conditions. Um, the couple we've got implemented in there at the moment um, are um, uh, fame or fortune, basically. You, you either accumulate a vast quantity of um, wealth and retire to a mansion by the sea, or you gather enough um, sea stories and memories of distant shores and souvenirs that you can write a, um, uh, a defining um, moment poem that, that makes you famous and win the game that way and we're going to add others where you can um, find your father's bones and satisfy a, a, a family plot or you can set up your own utopian pirate kingdom on an island or a couple of other stuff including one that's that's hidden but you also get um, the opportunity to to go for a draw so um, once you've upgraded your lodgings back home once you've actually purchased the house at any point you can just decide to retire and it tells you this is a, um, a suboptimal ending, but it's an ending, and it's better than dying out at sea, which might happen on your next voyage. And because we have a legacy system where you get to pass on um, one of your elements to the next player, you can pass on um, a skill, for example, you might decide that from a gameplay point of view, um, you want to to duck out while the going's good because actually your ship's badly damaged and your cruise terrorists through the roof and you're going to survive another voyage or you might even conceivably decide it for a narrative reason that that your captain has defeated this particular nemesis um they've danced to death too many times and you'd like to see them go out on a high note because you have a bit of a sense of the history of them and pass on the torch to their their protege so you've got you know i i guess that there's effectively um all that told about a dozen different ways to complete the game and obviously we will track the different ways you complete the game um, as persistent qualities that, that the game remembers like achievements well, Tom, this is, go ahead sorry. Sorry. I was just going to say just as an add on to that I've always kind of thought that Fallen London actually does have a score which is but I think of it as the list of qualities that you get uh, as you accumulate through the game I have a single number that tells you how you've done but I'm looking at mine now and I can see that I'm having recurring dreams and that I'm uh, tough by profession and that I'm acquainted with urchins that I'm daring that I'm magnanimous that I'm forceful that I'm subtle and so on so it's like a score in words if you like well, Fallen London, though, never ends, though. Like, I think of that as a very organic, ongoing thing. You might, two months from now, the urchins might hate you because of something. Uh, you're never going to put a cap on that experience and close it. And I'm never, mm. and if that happens, I want some kind of summary, uh, especially if I'm going to play again and then sort of compare the, the, the playthroughs. Um, Tom, this, that's very much like your other favorite uh, nautical game, Nemo's War. I mean, you can have a, a bunch of different endings from a bunch of different perspectives. And they mean it different things. And that actually, well, Nemo's War gives you a score. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of this, I, I think all, all of the solitaire games I play, when you're done, and I'm thinking specifically of solitaire board games now, when you're done, you, they almost always give you a way to score your play, because when you come back and do it again, you want to see, did I do better? I'm okay with Fallen London not having a score, because like Paul said, my score is basically a list of stats. It's like an ongoing character that tell that shows you know how I fit into the world, uh, mm. whether or not I'm having the nightmares, uh, if I'm scandalous or if I'm upright. Uh, all of that is the, these fluctuating values. It's an ongoing story, and if ever that book closes, 
for gameplay reasons, especially if there is gameplay in the game, I just kind of want some. I, I think of you know what pirates, Sid Meier's pirates, and let's let's mm. go to the to the well because I think a lot of us have drunk very deeply from that, and it influences later games that we've played, and obviously that's got some effect on on some of see. You know, oh, Sid yeah. Meier's Sid Meier's pirates had those various. You know, there I think there was something about. You're looking for your sister, even. I think. But there was like an, a, that storyline in every game, and and sometimes you could beat that, and then you would get to the end. And if I'm not mistaken, you had a score there, and you also had like in Civilization a ranking, like uh, you know when you were in Civilization, were you the Dan Quayle level, were you the Genghis Khan level, were you the Abraham Lincoln level? There, there was some summary um, of how you did, so that when you played again, you could try to top that. Um. So I, you know, I think we're, we're just going to disappoint you, Tom, because uh, <laughs> it's a game designed by somebody who doesn't look at scores. But it's, it's interesting you mentioned Nemo's War because I played that um, on the back of uh, Tom versus Bruce, in fact, um, and enjoyed it. And I've replayed it. Um, but I couldn't tell you what my score was. You know, I, I cared at the moment it happened that I got a different ending. I cared that I got an ending that was more or less successful than another ending. But it was the um, the narrative that paid out for me. And I think what I'm looking for when I play um, Nemo's War or um, FTL or uh, uh, I guess not so much Don't Starve because Don't Starve you know, doesn't have an ending for, for same people. Um, it's always impossible to complete. Um, is an excuse to play the game another time if I'm enjoying the game. I don't think I've ever played a game through to get a higher score, but I have gone, oh, there's another unlockable ship in there. Um, that gives me a rationale for spending another couple of hours sunk into it. So it's, it's, it's a related impulse, but I'm afraid it's built to satisfy a slightly different one. Well, when you say you're going to disappoint me, uh, Alexis, uh, I'm encouraged to hear about a legacy system because, you know, I think of the Pathfinder card game where when you play, you're getting new cards into your character deck that you can use next time. Uh, uh, Double Fine is doing a game called, uh, I want to say Broken Chalice. Uh, anyway, they have a similar thing where when your character Master dies. Chalice. What, what is it? Massive Chalice. Massive Chalice, that sounds right, yeah. yeah. Oh, Broken, yeah, they have another Broken Age game or whatever, yeah. So uh, Massive Chalice has this legacy system as well. So if I play, I may not get a score, but I am I am unlocking something for the next play, or there, or there is a sense of continuity. Uh, so the fact that if you're not going to give me a score in Sunless Sea, I guess I'll make do with whatever doodad I can pass along to my next captain. Um, so that's the thing. I think context, again, this is, this is what I was saying earlier about it being the mechanical arm of setting um, I I play Pathfinder more than I play the Lord of the Rings solitaire card game when I'm in the mood for a solitaire card game because there's no persistence for the Lotro, uh, for the uh, Lord of the Rings one um, and there is for, for, for Pathfinder so it just gives me a reason to care about repeat play mm-hmm. and that's all I want you know if, if I'm enjoying the game I'll go back to the game but I want a, a reason to pretend I'm not wasting my life doing it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's never a waste of your life. I don't think. Bruce, what's your uh, highest score in Pathfinder? Um, 37. <laughs> oh, man, that's terrible. I'm sorry to hear that. My highest score is uh, 1,842. Oh. That's better than mine. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I, I, we still have one... Um, we still have one... Uh, 
adventure or scenario or dungeon or whatever to go in that in the campaign that comes in the box. Oh, in Pathfinder, you're saying? Yes. Well, actually, I want to hear from you guys. So we've obviously... I love when developers talk about what other games they play and like. Um, is there is there any... What do you play, watch, or read while you're making Sunless Sea? Uh, you, you mentioned the Master and Commander series. Um, what, what other sorts of things do you use for inspiration or to, to energize yourselves uh, for Sunless Sea? Paul, do you have- Art yeah, I'm just sort of thinking through. Uh, reading what I've been reading a lot of Daphne de Maurier. Uh, ah, which one? What? Like, yeah, like, oh, like Jamaica, Jamaica Inn and, and Rebecca as well, just because of the sort of moody um, coastal, you know, gothic thing, uh-huh. uh, which is kind of the area of, uh, of the map that I'm doing at the moment. Didn't Play, she, by uh, the way, write, isn't she the one who wrote The Birds, the Hitchcock movie? Yes, yes, yes. I was thinking for a minute it was Susan Hill, but no, it was Daphne de Maurier, wasn't it? That's also the, 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 the fact that the birds, I, I think it's a hugely visual part, like that little coastal town of the mm. birds, I think of as a, a very coastal setting, you know, as this coastal horror, basically. Yeah. Totally, and uh, the Wicker Man as well is, is, is ah. coming up a lot at the moment, just because of the areas quite uh, close to the sort of starting area on the map are, are very, um, uh, very like that sort of English pastoral country horror. Uh-huh. Strange rituals on the mountainside, but it's all quite cosy, and you can have a cup of tea before you get slaughtered. <laughs> um, other than that, playing a lot of roguelikes. Playing, uh, I played a bit of Leviathan to get a feel of how their ships worked, uh, but I couldn't really get on with the combat. Wait, what is Leviathan? Uh, I don't think I know that. It's it's a paradox game. It's a sort of turn based um, uh, battleships kind of game. Very Bruce, cool. Bruce, why don't we know about this? Do you know about this Leviathan thing? A turn based battleship game? Oh my god, no. How come we're not playing that right now? It's asynchronous online and multiplayer. Uh, oh, I do know what you're talking yeah. about. There's even an iPad version, I yeah. believe. Yeah. I know. They promoted it bizarrely and brilliantly with jazz, uh, which had nothing at all <laughs> to do with, with the game. But they released this wonderful trailer with this smooth voice going on about battleships. And it just Real quick, I want to come back to this, but this is the perfect opportunity to quickly uh, tell us about your music, because I love in the trailer. Uh, and I don't, there's never music in Fallen London, is there? No, this 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 was so good. Um, we we really lucked out on this um, years ago. Um, uh, a woman called Maribeth Solomon um, started playing um, for London, uh, and she sent us friendly mails saying, "Hey, I'm a film composer, um, and if you ever want music for London, I love your game, and let me compose it." And we uh, liked her, so we wrote back and said, sure, you know, if we ever make a real video game, haha, but obviously we don't want to put music on a web page. Um, and I looked her up, and oh my god, you know, she really is quite an accomplished film composer. Uh, and uh, and then when we came to um, uh, Summer Sea, I remembered her, I contacted her, uh, and uh, she said, yes, I, I'd love to work with you, and did this this amazing stuff. And literally what she did, she came back with a bunch of stuff which was, was very close to what we wanted. And we, we went back and said, could you make it like 20% less sense of wonder and 20% more dread? <laughs> and that, and that's, that's what she did. And mm. it's, it's, you know, people, everybody comments on it. And then as a sort of um, uh, apprentice to Maribeth, um, uh, we have another composer, uh, Megan, um, who's um, a sort of multi-class journalist, designer, um, composer. And specifically her contribution is the um, combat music, which is uh, aleatory. It actually changes based on the, the, the context and, and events of, of, of the combat, um, which, which 
has been a fun uh, uh, and interesting experiment. But the thing that, that really um, people keep commenting on is, is Maribeth. There's a lot more of it in the game, so we, we really lucked out with that. Uh, Maribeth Solomon sounds like she could be a character in Fallen London. Mm, does it? <laughs> so, okay, so other things that... So I, I love, Paul, that you, you mentioned, like, uh, uh, Wicker Man, Leviathan. Uh, can, can we segue real quick? I mean, I don't... Uh, just while I've got you guys here, I definitely want to bring this up. Is there a such thing as English horror? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what that oh, means. Yeah. What does that mean? It means hammer. Uh, well, yeah, initially it means hammer. Um, it means uh, cozy but gory. Now, Hammer is basically dead now. I know that the actual name of the studio has been revived and they're doing some mm. dippy things. But, but the actual Hammer horror from that era, we've lost that. Is there contemporary English horror? There's some low-budget uh, contemporary English horror. I think is Neil Marshall English. I think he's English. Yeah. Oh, he's definitely English. Oh, he, yeah. You know what? He might be from one of your holdings. He might be Irish or English. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, that sort of grungy, um, uh, low-budget, uh, quite serious horror is, is, is. There's quite a lot of that in England. Paul, do you um, have a director named uh, Ben? I want to say Waitley. It might be Wheatley. Ben Wheatley. Yeah. But you. Yeah. Field in England. Kill list. I think you saw. Mm. Didn't you review? Um, oh yeah, well, uh, his his most recent one, which is ostensibly you could, you could say it's a comedy, but I think it's English horror, is a movie called Sightseers, which is oh, yeah. this, uh, this couple just touring English sites and they end up doing terrible, reprehensible, horrific things. Um, but uh, I think of him as kind of a, a latter day English horror. Uh, it's kind of dry English horror, I guess. And uh, yeah, um. I think. Have you come across? Uh, I, I think a lot of the thing about. English horror is it, it 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 does have one toe approaching the boundary of camp or comedy uh, and um, it, it can be hard to tell which and that's you know that absolutely that's that that's hammer you're not entirely sure whether they're um, actually taking the piss or not at any given moment yeah uh, and I think uh, again uh, you know the League of Gentlemen um, uh, Extraordinary, of, Extraordinary League of Gentlemen or League of Gentlemen? Oh, no, no, unrelated. Um, it's uh, 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 one of the, I think it was, this was actually in a field in England, but they do um, very dark, very funny, uh, gothic-oriented stuff, which which is kind of comedy with one toe over the, the line into, into horror. Real sort of, did they just do what I thought they just did? Mm. Terrorist. So you, you make me think there's a – he's definitely English. There's a fellow named Paul Andrew Williams who did – all of his movies are very different from each other. But he did one. Uh, it's I think it starts as a comedy. Uh, and beca- It's what would happen if Ransom of Red Chief, which is a Mark Twain story about a, a kidnapping, and the, the, the kidnapping victim is a rambunctious child, and then the kidnappers. It's almost like Home Alone by Mark Twain. Uh, this, this movie directed by Paul Andrew Williams, very English, it's like Ransom of Red Chief – that turns into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it's a movie called The Cottage uh, that plays so completely as comedy and eventually over-the-top horror. Uh, and he's very English. And, and your mention of League of Gentlemen, do, do many English people know about one of their shows called Snuffbox? Does that it's ring you to me? Oh, right. I, I wish more people knew that, because it's kind of like, what if Monty Python was way more grotesque and absurd and nonsensical and dark 
Uh, Snuffbox is a, a series that I think went for uh, six half-hour episodes, and I'm still haunted by it. Uh, I've rewatched it several times, and it's just weird and dark, and, and it, it makes me think this must be what it was like. It actually, I, I do recall, this is what it was like as a child watching The Muppet Show and realizing that these aren't just cute puppets, that there's something really cool and subversive going on here that I'm not old enough to appreciate yet. So when I watch Snuffbox, as an adult, I'm like, wait a minute, there's something really weird that I'm not dark enough to appreciate going on here. Um, so at any rate, when I think of like modern English horror, some of those things come to mind for me. And you guys are definitely, you have a toe dipped in horror. I mean, I, I do think of mm. Fallen London. And when I hear about what Sunless Sea is doing with the idea of, of darkness and monsters, I mean, I think you guys are kind of English horror as well. Yeah, Hammond's not a bad comparison, actually, because it is, I mean, particularly with modern eyes, it's basically funny and campy, but it is occasionally, it's it's not afraid to sort of take the mask off and scare you from time to time, uh, which I think we, we try and do that as well. We do have stuff that's, you know, that's occasionally grotesque and haunting, but it's generally delivered with a, you know, with, with a tip of the hat. I think the, 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 the one, the thing in Sunless Sea that has garnered us an unbelievable amount of love, who knows what I'm going to say, um, mm. is the cannibalism element. Um, mm. Eat Your Crew has, has gone down absurdly well with people. And researching cannibalism, you know, I'm kind of, if you could ask the NSA not to look at my search history, that would be <laughs> really I think uh, the NSA is okay with cannibalism. As long as you're not <laughs> researching anything about Islam, they're okay with that. <laughs> Islamic cannibalism. Uh, oh, oh, now you've just tagged the podcast. We're going to get shut down. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think cannibalism is, is, is right on that interface because you know, eating people is wrong. And funny. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> and I think one of the, you know, arguably the greatest English horror director... Um, very unfairly was born in America and is American um, obviously it's Terry Gilliam uh, who uh, you know uh, you watch Brazil or Time Bandits and his DNA is is Elstree you know Uh, and again it's that that thing of, of, of you're joking until the moment that you're not uh, do you know a movie he did called Tideland Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Truly horrific stuff. I mean, I I think that's one of his purest horror films. And it's a shame not many people know it, and it's not for everyone. But uh, even in the, the, when you put in the DVD for Tideland, you know, normally you'll get like a, a little studio logo or an FBI warning. When you put in the DVD for Tideland, you get a little introduction where Terry Gilliam is talking to the camera, and he's saying, uh, hello, this is your Tideland DVD. Uh, you probably will hate this movie. <laughs> I, yeah, I, that, that, that really annoyed me. It was like, ah, oh, I don't want to either love or hate the movie. Can I just quite like it, please? And I, I didn't love it, but it, it, yeah, it certainly made an impression. Well, there's horrific stuff in there, like a child with a dead body. I mean, that, that's, that's uh, weird. And again, that's, 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 that's what we're talking about. It's back and forth over the line because it's very funny. It's wrong and funny. Jeff Bridges in this, this state of, of increased decomposition. But oh, God, spoilers. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> anyway, Bruce hasn't seen Bruce. Bruce hasn't seen probably ninety nine percent of all movies we will bring up. Bruce reads too many books. Uh, <laughs> I watch movies, just they're never none of them are in English. You watch Russian movies, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, let's see. So um, 
what's the current timeline for when a guy like me can safely jump into Sunless Sea? I'm, I'm sure you probably hate having to answer that, but uh, what's the official line? So we have um, a schedule, um, and I was building a schedule, and Liam and Paul weren't taking any notice, so then I color-coded it, and they still didn't take any notice. So then I gave all the releasers code names for gemstones, and they grudgingly paid attention. Um, and we hit the Sapphire release, if we stay on course, in August. But I would go in and play it before then, because I think probably by end July, most or all of the mechanical stuff will be bedded in. I mean, we'll always tune as, as, as long as we're out we're doing patches. But because we are effectively adding a layer to the sea at the time, you can go in, have a solid experience, not run into um, any invisible walls other than the edge of the sea. And then when we release the east and southern edge of the sea, then um, you can go out and explore the, the, the rumoured chunk. So I think July is probably pretty safe, unless you get really going to be purist about it. Can you wait till July time? Maybe. Uh, we'll see. Uh, although one of the things I also wonder with Fallen London, um, that the game of course was never done. You were constantly adding new content. There's seasonal things, like there's a spring thing going on right now. Uh, is that part of your plan at all for Sunless Sea, or do you plan on basically wrapping at some point and saying, I mean, obviously you can do things with, with DLC later on, but, uh, you, you're, I presume you're basically making a game that's going to be closed in a complete package and done at some point. Is that correct? Yes. So I'm very keen to do that because every schedule I've had for completing air quotes for London has, um, fallen by the wayside as we did other projects, um, or as we, uh, had more ideas, uh, and, I do want to to do something in the near future that is is finished, even if we then add stuff to it. And the nice thing about Sunnersea is, if, if it's successful, um, there are other directions we we can expand. We're already committed to doing a submersible uh, expansion as a Kickstarter stretch goal, but we could conceivably add more areas to the east side of the map if 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 it's outrageously successful. I don't think it will be that successful. I think you know. <laughs> We'll be a, I think we're a modest indie success, but but if, if if we we could add stuff to the edge, but I don't want to. Uh, I, here's a tip for you guys. It's right now. What is it? It's mid-May. Uh, come on out and and open a booth at E3. We have E3 here in Los Angeles in a few weeks. Uh, you guys should open a Sunless Sea booth. Ooh. When is that May? You've got a couple of weeks to set it up. Uh, it needs yeah, a lot of lights. That's... It needs something big and flashy. Maybe a giant robot or a giant boat. Build a giant boat uh, and just have uh, the trailer for Sunless Sea playing on a huge jumbotron screen, uh, yeah. and then then yeah, you'll be uh, way well, more we successful. Send Liam. We could yeah. send him, and we should cover him in glitter. I like that. He's, yeah, he's good at that sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> we could steal a boat. We 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 work above a dock, basically. So, <laughs> oh uh, yes, no. Just uh, do you know, Tom, the backstory of our, our our office? That it's basically the house from Poltergeist. What? What are you talking about? Poltergeist is American. The, you guys don't yeah. own in America. The Poltergeist was in a, over an ancient Indian burial ground. Yeah, right. Exactly. It was a subdivision. Yeah. What kind of what kind of shenanigans are you pulling here, Alexis? 
we our Native American burial ground is a sea of carcinogenic tar above which we're suspended. The peninsula where the Fair Butter office is used to be a gas works and was uninhabitable for 50 years because of the sea of toxic carcinogenic tar. And so they peeled off all the topsoil, put down a plastic sheet, and then built on top of it. But it's still all down there. I live on the peninsula, and there is literally a clause in my lease that forbids me to dig below a certain depth. Wow. So, <laughs> so not literally poltergeist, a, a more figurative thing. So you, that some of these fumes might explain some of the crazier storylines in Fallen London. That's our, our, our literal summer scene. <laughs> Very nice. Nice. <laughs> What, what's the uh, allowable digging depth? Do you know offhand? I'd have to look it up. So right. I have to unseal the grimoire in order to look it up. So. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, be careful with the shovel out there. I will. Yeah. Careful with that axe, Eugene. <laughs> oh, wow, a Pink Floyd reference, Bruce. You're dating us. Uh, uh, Alexis, Paul, uh, I wish you guys the best of luck. Uh, I guess I'll bide my time until July. Um, I'll just keep playing. Much. Yeah, Bruce, you, you uh, go ahead and uh, yeah, keep us posted on how you're doing. Uh, in the meantime, go to Steam Greenlight um, and click a yes. doesn't cost you anything on Sunless Sea. Show them your support. Uh, and if you're like me and you're not playing Sunless Sea, you can still play Fall in London. Um, you guys, as I mentioned, you've done a great job sort of divorcing it from the free-to-play model. It used to be totally tangled up with Facebook. All of that is gone for, for the most part. It's, it's, it's a great free experience. You can jump in, see what these guys are capable of, and, and make it all the more difficult to wait until July for some of see. Um, so, uh, guys, thanks very much, and uh, good luck in the coming months. Yeah, thanks Thank very you. much. Thank you very much. Come with me, my love. All right, well, uh, Bruce, I, I, I really love it when someone with an accent comes along and classes up the joint. Yeah, it, it just it gives it a sort of an air of respectability and uh, and gravitas sort of that uh, we don't have. It's like having Queen Elizabeth and Winston Churchill on the podcast in a way. Uh, very nice. Um, did you? I, I didn't know if it was the sort of thing that you actually want to ask someone about. It's a little personal, but uh, did, do you think Alexis really does have a tattoo on his leg of that symbol? Oh gosh, I couldn't even speculate. He mentioned uh, it, and uh, isn't that kind of gauche to ask someone about their tattoos? I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, for instance, I've never asked you about yours. You're, you're. Not many people know this. You're really tatted up, but I don't feel like it's any of my business to inquire about your ink. For instance. Well, that's why I don't have a webcam. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, that's why we don't have pictures of ourselves. Mm -hmm. A lot of our articles, because you know what, our tattoos are our business. That's correct. Um, uh, when they were talking, uh, I kept thinking of. Like, do you remember when it wasn't necessarily that surprising to have games with good writing, or was it? Like, I just can't help but think all this, 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 uh, this perception we have that with new games like like Bioshock and, and Fallen London and uh, even like Tomb Raider, this idea that hey, great writing in video games, we never had that before. But whenever I hear that, I think, well, you know, I seem to recall Planescape Torment had some mm. pretty awesome uh. writing. And what year was that? That was like 1972, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's right. About what? That's when Led Zeppelin Four album came out. Right, exactly. Um, that, yeah, because yeah. uh, I used to play Led Zeppelin. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> hey, this new album, this new video game. Yeah. Um, but I can't help but think that there are these great chapters that we've had of fantastic writing, and one of the earliest ones I can remember. 
I guess it's probably Planescape Torment. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I think that it's important to to note that uh, you know I think game writing and, and writing and and are, are different things and they achieve different things. Um, I, I I feel like game stories haven't been all that great. Um, I think that writing in general has become more uh, sort of sophisticated. Um, sort of media presentation in general overall has become more sophisticated, whether it's um, you know TV commercials. You watch TV commercials from the 70s and think, oh my God, this is so naive and earnest. Uh, and I think things, uh, television shows. Um, so I think that the what you're seeing in writing in games... Uh, is a reflection of a general trend. Um, I I, I, I want to say that what we talked about in the podcast was really um, we touched a l- little bit on it, but I, I want to say that mm-hmm. the the setting, the settings that people are creating um, are really separate. I, I don't see them as I still I, I understand what what we what uh, Alexis and Paul brought up, but um, I really feel like you can't really have uh, a narrative that has the, the, or I'm not seeing it in games right now, a narrative that has the depth of, uh, of you know, I don't know, Nadine Gordimer or somebody. Um, but that's not what it's trying to do, and that's not the audience, and I understand all that. Um, and I'm just, I'm just really impressed by what, it, what the games are doing and what Sunless Sea does do, um, which is to create this... Um, and, and Fall in London as well. Fall in London is obviously finished, so we can talk about that too. But um, create this in- incredible uh, imaginative uh, space that I, I want to visit. And I want to mm-hmm. continue to visit. Um, well, I because I, I when when we it sort it sort of seems like we all uh, you were kind of outvoted. It became a three versus one thing. Mm-hmm. But I I do want to think I I believe and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Part of what is behind your point came from a conversation that you and I had earlier where we were specifically talking about um, how a lot of games that claim they're inspired by something mm-hmm. are only inspired by the visual look of it, and they completely right. miss the point of it. And yes. one, of the, one of the cases in point, every game in the future looks like Blade Runner, mm-hmm. but those games don't really appreciate the point of Blade Runner, which is about what does it mean to be human? You know, What, what is the authenticity of your experience? Blade Runner is about this existential dilemma – is what I believe, is what I know, is it real, does it matter? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Blade Runner is about being human, the, the human condition. Um, mm-hmm. But nobody who's making a game that looks like, you know, nobody when they say, I'm inspired by Blade Runner, they're just talking about the production design and the look of it, which is not the point of Blade Runner. You know, that's the mm-hmm. setting of Blade Runner they get into. Um, they don't, they, you know, the they're they're inspired not by the point of it, not by the ultimate message of Blade Runner. They're just looking at the setting, um, and I feel that's a, a trap for a lot of video games because a lot of video games, even though they might have a cool setting and they might have cool visuals and they might even have neat little story vignettes, mm-hmm. they don't have an overarching point. Right. You know, a, a video game is this sprawling. 5, 10, 20 hour experience that is designed to distract you for the most part. They're, they're much more comfortable with being mere entertainment. You know, the mm-hmm. equivalent of a Michael Bay movie mm-hmm. than a lot of movies or books are. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but I do think that's changing as well, by the way. Um, 
A lot of it is on the indie front. For, for instance, there's a fantastic game uh, called Gone Home that is about the uncertainty of being in love as a teenager. You know, that's the point. Uh, it, it's, it's, I think, one of the only well-done love stories in, in a video game. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a great game called Little Inferno, which is a little bit of sort of it, it, it looks like a little time waster, but Inf- Little Inferno has this amazing point about destroying your own childhood and, and the destructible influence of, of children. Uh, you know, I, that's, you know, that's the point of it, and it, it's not ab- about a setting. Uh, Braid, which I didn't care for, but Jonathan mm-hmm. Blow's message in Braid about your own perception of your bad relationships is, is an amazing point, uh, in the context of just a platformer. Even AAA things. Tomb Raider, uh, as kind of a horror movie about the, uh, empowerment is a word that gets kicked around a lot. I don't want to uh, be too glib using it. But the original, you know, this reboot of Tomb Raider is about the empowerment of an action heroine. You know, it's about, it's sort of a coming of age story for an action heroine. Uh, it's about going from vulnerability through the act of violence to empowerment. Uh, and it's the stuff of great horror movies. Um, Bioshock 2, which we talked about, is about mm-hmm. parenting. You know, when, since when, you know, it's, it's a factor of people who make video games growing up, having families, being influenced by the act of having children, and then wanting to talk about that in a context of a video game. Um, so when, when you distinguish story and setting, I think, yeah, there's definitely something to talk about there. But I, I still think like a lot of games, even if they're just like little picaresque journeys through little vignettes, yeah, you know, they're, they're just settings in a way. But there are some games out there, increasingly more and more, that have these incredibly important points that rise above mere entertainment, I feel. Well, I, I'm not disputing that. I, I guess I'm just saying that the, 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 the emotional and, and sort of philosophical heft of those points has not gotten to the level that it really stays with me at all. Sure. Uh, as opposed to other things that uh, I read or have read that I still think about constantly. Um, and um, and I'm not saying that the games aren't going to get there. It's just that I don't feel like they have. Um, and I, um, and, and the, your point about Tomb Raider as well, or uh, sorry, about Blade Runner, mm-hmm. is, is a good point. Now, I, I, I know I defend literature a little bit too much, and I would say that, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure that authors, if they could, um, movies have a look because they can. Mm-hmm. Books don't because they can't. So I'm sure that you know you said the the the, the look of Blade Runner is not the point, but it is kind of the point. Um, you know, it was important to uh, to um, uh, the movie to have um, that particular you know set design and the costumes and everything uh, that was that was part of the film. Uh, so. It's it's not unreasonable for people to pick up on the um, on the uh, on the look of the film. It's just a little facile uh, to leave it at that. And it's also something that video games are uniquely equipped to do with, right. with, like video games are generally about visual. Not generally. A lot of times, a lot of video games are about this visual spice. You know, just visual dazzling production right. values. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what better way to do that than to mimic something that really impressed you before, like Blade Runner? Sure. Um, so. Where video games traditionally have problems, though, and again, where I think they're getting better, are places where books can excel, uh, and this ties in 
a lot with what Fail Better is doing. You know, books tend to be written by people who know how to write well, or at least mm-hmm. good books do. Mm-hmm. Video games, not necessarily the case. If you're lucky, you get someone who can write fairly well, and if you're even luckier, you can implement some of that in the game. Um, but something that, you know, I, I think Fail Better, those guys are amazing, amazing writers, and I don't want to gush too much in front of them. It's a little mm-hmm. embarrassing, but mm-hmm. good Lord, the... I, when I play Fall in London, I just get gobsmacked by occasional turns of phrase. Mm-hmm. Those guys are some fantastic writers. Yeah. And video gaming as a, as, as a medium is privileged to have them. Uh, and another example of this, you know, I, I mentioned Planescape Torment, what I think it's Chris Avalon did way back when, mm-hmm. uh, was great. We recently had, I guess two years ago, uh, Bastion. What Greg Kasavin did with little snippets of text in Bastion was kind of the same thing. There were little bits there that I was just gobsmacked by, by how well written they were and, mm-hmm. and how compact they were and how appropriate mm-hmm. they were. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, similarly, something that's missing a lot from video games that works not for books but for movies and certain television uh, – I love watching good actors at work. I love the emotional resonance of a powerful performance. Mm-hmm. You get that in good movies, you get that in good TV, and it's always been the case because a lot of, you know, once you get past how cool it is to capture things on film, you get down to how do you capture that human element? You know, how okay. do you create empathy in the audience? So you get really good actors to do, you know, to express really good writing. Mm-hmm. Video games tend to, they have these goofy little polygonal pup, you know, puppets made out of polygons, and right. it's terrible, and maybe you make their eyes glisten realistically. Mm-hmm. But I think that's changing with technology. Tomb Raider's a great example. Um, other great examples, uh, The Last of Us is one of the most emotionally powerful games based on performances. Performances being uh, the little... Uh, the, the animated characters and the voice actors. Mm-hmm. Last of Us, whatever failings it might have as a game, is impeccable as a, a set of performances. Uh, and even uh, GTA V. You know, what Rockstar did with their characters and the performance of those characters, the, the voice actors and the character models, uh, that to me rivals what we get in movies these days. Uh, that sort of resonance. Um, so yeah, as storytelling mediums, I, I just couldn't be happier with where video games are right now. Um, and I'm glad to see guys like Paul and Alexis uh, getting to, to, you know, meeting with success. Yeah, um, I mean, you, you talked about the the influence of technology, but I I think that you know what Paul's doing with the art in in Fall in London and and um, and Sunless Sea is just spectacular, and it's it doesn't require all that much technology. Um, but it's so evocative and so it fits what they're trying to do so well. Um, you know, I, I had mentioned to him that I'm sure many people have that there should be more Fall in London uh, comics. They should do a, they should do a Fall in London comic and try to get it published. Um, I know that that's a, you know from their for, from their perspective that's a business decision because that's uh, you know time with uh, that's employee time that um, isn't being spent on doing something else and they have to decide how much money that's going to make them but uh, holy cow I, I just uh, I would hope that people would, would buy something like that because I certainly would well the first step for that of course is to break out of uh, kind of the ghetto I don't mean that in a, the, the ghetto of a text based free to play game into new spaces to reach new audiences right. and then grow themselves as a company you know I love the fact that this is an intellectual property 
being pushed out, being expanded. Uh, and yeah, I love down the line. I don't read comic books, but I would read a Fallen London comic book and actually mm-hmm. have read their, their comics. Uh, I, so yeah, I would love to see them having more opportunities to tell stories given what great writers they are and given what a clever setting this is. Yeah, um, that really is. Why do we like this Victorian era stuff, Bruce? What's the deal with this? Oh gosh, it's so subversive. Are you being serious or facetious? Would you, would, uh, it's it's just like England and then the what 1900. Why does this? And I'm serious because I'm hugely fascinated by this in a couple of different areas these days. Why does this matter? What's the deal? Well, I mean, I, I mean, Victorian England is is uh, is sort of the the archetype for uh, appearances with uh, dissociated motives and and um, you know behavior, right? So um, I think that. And and it's also, you know, the idea of the, uh, you know, in changing industrial technology, social change, um, but this all this always this veneer of propriety, and you sort of have to unlock it, and and um, uh, you you find all this uh, this vice and avarice, and um, I think Fall in London does a great job of sort of teasing out all these different threads and then making them, you know, in this in the style of uh, gaming, you know, um, really preposterous and uh, and frightening at the same time. So, um, and the artwork uh, is, I mean, it, it really is, it's it's almost, I hate the word transgressive, I really hate it, but uh, I think I can use it here. Uh, and uh, the, just what they were, what... Um, uh, Paul and Alexis were talking about with the you know the, the idea of cannibalism. Yes. Um, it just the 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 way in which the um, sort of Victorian attitudes and and the and sort of the the pantheon of of Victorian philosophy can be developed, like the idea of the the Church of England and 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 this you know heaven and hell kind of. Um, Dichotomy that you can there are tropes that are um, they're familiar enough to us because they're part of our tradition, but they're also um, distant enough that they can be sort of uh, manipulated and, and, and twisted and, and turned into new things. Well, hearing you talk, it seems to me one of the tropes that I particularly love about this Victorian period: uh, the clash of civilization and savagery, and uh, mm-hmm. that that you know, in the sense of cannibalism, that that takes you know, you imagine the the small troop of doomed British soldiers having to eat each other. You know, mm-hmm. they're very civilized; they believe in in rules and order, and they have to eat each other to survive. That civilization mm-hmm. and savagery, but also on a global scale, England as an empire with its its tendrils into what, at, to them, at, at the time, seemed like very mysterious, savage places, mm-hmm. uh, you know, full of of uh, natives that worshipped strange gods. Um, uh, the, you know, that's a part of, the, of that era, that Victorian era. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, it reminds me also, you mentioned Church of England, uh, The Wicker Man, that that classic horror movie is also about the clash of the church of england with these pagans out on the islands there and it's that same thing you know the savagery and the civilization Mm -hmm. Uh, so there's there's those two values sort of budding heads and interwoven together Mm -hmm. um uh have you played a study in emerald yet bruce i have not yet because right, that, that's also, again, Victorian England, but mm-hmm. what if the world was ruled by the minions of Cthulhu? Yeah, what uh, if? 
and uh, you know now go play a game in that setting. Yeah, uh, which is yeah, probably I have to do that. That's that's on my list. Uh, Sherlock Holmes also, I guess Victorian now, uh, very big nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing. This idea that right there, I, I think the birth of detective fiction. Um, which is a, a standard thing that people love that goes back to the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do you feel about... Uh, do you have the same disdain for H.P. Lovecraft stuff that you mm. have for elves? Interestingly not. Uh, be, um, although, I mean, if, I think if there were a lot of derivative H.P. Lovecraft stuff, I would have... Uh, similar disdain for the derivative Lovecraft stuff as I have for the derivative elf stuff. Um, the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft is uh, it's particularly uh, that, I mean, talk about setting. I mean, if we're going to talk anything about the, the story and setting, I mean, there's 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 something about H.P. Lovecraft that only works uh, in, um, in sort of uh, you know, Early 20th century New England. Right. When you try to update it to the modern day, it, it kind yeah. of you know it, weird things happen. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It doesn't. It doesn't really work that well. So, um, um, but you know, you get you get kind of a sort of an H.P. Lovecraft uh, feel out of Fall in London. I, I think. Oh, of course you do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, tentacles and stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> tentacles. Any anytime you have tentacles, you think of H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> uh, the, it's also the uh, just you know there, there's this. Uh, undercurrent of something malevolent, and that, that's mm-hmm. such a standard Lovecraft thing, and that's certainly the case with Fallen London, and the whole idea of, of darkness all around you in Sunless Sea, which I'm, I'm eager to see what they do with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're playing with that as well, but the idea that your light is, a, I guess, a finite resource. Uh, right. Um, and yeah, you're keeping the, the darkness at bay. Yeah. Uh, that, that lurking out there in the darkness is stuff that will kill you, that is malevolent, uh, mm-hmm. and as long as you've got your beacon of light, you're okay. Yeah. yeah. Now there, there were. It's it's interesting how they're doing that. I won't I won't talk too much about it. But no, no, um, talk about it. What do you mean? Well, I mean, I it, it's uh, well because because I'm like I said, it's I'm, I'm playing an early version. I, I don't even think I've updated to the latest beta. So um, you know, a lot of stuff isn't isn't working. I'm sure right. the, the, the way that they want to. So, um, but uh, it, I really have to say how um, I will talk about the fact that I I really. Um, I have such a different experience playing Fall in London than I do Sunless Sea because they've they've given me mechanics and they've given me, you know, sort of these possibilities. And when I'm fighting, it uh, and you know I can see my uh, I, I can see my um, what's really kind of like my ship's health bar, but it's really it, it, they have a lot of really great ideas. The idea of the hunger of the crew, so. You have a hunger uh, bar that decrements uh, and just kind of creeps and creeps and creeps. And I feel like in some ways the the fat you know things will pop up like a window saying uh, you know your crew is you know really hungry and you can uh, you know you can eat some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I feel like there's there's something in there that needs to be tweaked still because. The interruption of the, the, there's sort of a jarring uh, quality to the um, to the presentation. Um, I love it. I just feel like there's there's it's still it, it's kind of like when you have um, uh, you know 
when you when you fix something that's broken, but you don't quite fix it, so you can kind of notice the interface. Uh, I feel like that a little bit with with some of the mechanics in in Sunless Sea, and I'm not really sure what I was expecting because I knew how much I enjoyed the writing in Fall in London, and uh, I love kind of going around and exploring the, the you know the uh, you have this little um, the kind of cone of light that you can that you shines in front of your ship and you can I mean, you saw it I'm sure in the trailer uh, people can can watch the trailer and see for themselves um, that all I love doing all those things it's just the way that they interact sometimes I feel like I'm not getting the best of the two because I'm what at any given time I'm focused on one or the other um, and I'll be really curious to see how they how they end up solving that how much does Sunless Sea remind you, or does it, of uh, Seven Cities of Gold? Um, so, a little bit. That's a good. That's actually a good, uh, a good, um, good comparison because in Seven Cities of Gold, you know, you had a, a finite number of resources, and you kept having to look for the for the uh, you know for the landing points that, that were flashing, as I recall. Um, and there was some tension to that, and there is definitely a significant amount of tension when you sail your ship around in Sunless Sea, and you have these these uh, crabs that are coming after you, and they're kind of clacking, and and um, you know you you have the the combat is as uh, Alexis pointed out, it's sort of an MMO kind of thing where you you just click on your ability, and then it has a it, when I was playing, it has a cooldown, but I think I guess they're switching that. Um, to the power up or whatever it's called. Which, by the way, sorry to interrupt you, but I love mm-hmm. the fact that they are making those kind of gameplay calls. Like, I think the idea is that a cooldown is a passive thing. You're waiting, mm-hmm. you know, you're drumming your finger. Right. When can I right. shoot the gun again? Whereas pressing the button and then waiting for the the result, like that's an active thing. Like, oh, what's right. going to happen? There you're like biting right. your fingernails instead of right. drumming your fingers. I right. love the fact that they, that, that says to me, okay, I can trust these guys to get gameplay right. Oh yeah, oh I, I agree. I completely agree. I think that uh, you know that's the that's the kind of thing that I think a lot of people don't think about, or right. at least when I play people's games, I, I it's clear to me that they really didn't think too much about some of these decisions. Right. Um, but I mean, it, it seems to me that that uh, they're doing quite a putting quite a bit of thought into what are really subtle differences, but they make they have a huge impact on how the game feels. Uh, so yeah, I think we can definitely trust them uh, to make uh, to make this work. If anybody's going to make this kind of thing work, it's going to be them. And just the the um, comment I think that Alexis made, I can't or it might have been Paul. I can't remember who said it, it was the beginning of the conversation. Thing about the time investment in uh, in just in getting good fonts or something like that, um, just for for the writing. Like if you're going to have game writing in a game, you have to have good fonts, <laughs> right. which is so. Uh, seems to me to be so obvious, yet in so many games, you know, stuff just gets thrown in. Like, I remember when I first played Neverwinter Nights, and it had these tiny little boxes with this, you know, like, whatever, aerial text. And it was so jarring, and I thought, how could you make a game that's based on uh, on so much dialogue and have it be presented in this way? It's almost like, you know, you spit out, you just put it all in Microsoft Word and then just have it spit out at the game. Um so I, I, I love that they, they think about things that carefully. Uh, what's your problem with Ariel? I use Ariel. Oh, God. What do you use? Sans serif? Some kind of comic sans serif? Uh, I bet you love uh, comic, that. Comic sans, yes, comic sans. <laughs> 
so that whole uh, Seven Cities of Gold thing, I love games about um, doomed expeditions mm. because I think it comes from a couple of things. Partly just being blown away by Seven Cities of Gold as a child, and that, yes. and you've written about that, just that amazing sense of, of exploration and discovery mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. tension, but also. Uh, as far as you know, people appropriating the point of Blade Runner uh, in, instead of the look, I think these games about doomed expeditions. To me, I, I think of a Garen in the Wrath of God. Oh, I was just about to say that. I love that movie. Yeah, and, and that again, that's that. You know, this is the Spanish conquistadors. It's a little bit different, but that clash of civilization and savagery, yep. and how savagery is always going to swallow up. Civ- I mean, it didn't turn out that way, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. well, fortunately, how savagery will always swallow up civilization, and it'll be a Garo with his daughter's you know shot dead and there's monkeys overrunning his rafts like i love the point of that Werner herzog movie we see in games like don't starve um and i presume sunless sea uh seven cities of gold i love stories about doomed expeditions and you're just trying to survive or get as far as you can um Mm -hmm. yeah well there's something human about that whole idea of being vulnerable and and not being sure that you're going to make it yeah, yeah, and, and and striving against chaos, you know, right. striving against savagery. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you know a game called? Um, let me screw up the order. It's either called Expeditions colon Conquistador, or it's called Conquistador colon Expeditions. <laughs> yes, uh, I I do know that game. That also, I, I've unfortunately never gotten very far with it. It's kind of yeah, an XCOM version of a Garrett Wrath of God, yeah. but they force you to play through. It, it's really drawn out. Like, I wish you could have a, a more compact experience like that in a kind of a random, procedurally generated world rather than having to go through their storyline. But I, I love that they play with that Conquistador stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I wish you could build rafts. You should totally be able to build rafts, and you, you decide, do you go down the river? Do you set off into the jungle? Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, do, do you know Don't Starve? Have you played that? I don't, I'm trying to decide whether or not you would like that or hate it, and I think you might hate it. I don't. I, I definitely know the game. I saw. I was. I multiple times uh, almost bought it and felt that the only thing that was really stopping was the fact that I keep buying games on Steam because they seem neat and I want to support the designers, and then I never play them. So I sort of have a moratorium on just buying things, right? Uh, just sort of for the idea of buying it. Um, so I don't think I actually have Don't Starve. Actually, I, now I'm going to go back in my Steam library and find out that, oh, yeah, I bought it like three months ago, but... Um, I haven't played it. I see that that you you kind of basically start with nothing, and then you basically have to just try to survive. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think for you, it would probably you would just feel like it was a lot of time frittering because a lot of what you have to do is you run around and you you know pick carrots and you eat them, oh. you chop down trees, and you use exactly. the wood to build, and and that. But but the. The thing that Don't Starve does so well that most of these other, you know, waste time crafting games don't do mm. is mm-hmm. it creates this sense of your, it's that Agera Wrath of God thing of mm-hmm. staving off the inevitability of failure, you know. And also in that game, they have a really cool mechanic where darkness closes in on you, and if you don't have some source of light or fire, you start to lose sanity. Like sanity mm. is one of your stats. And as your sanity goes down, you start to hallucinate monsters attacking you. Really? But your hallucinations can hurt you. <laughs> oh, um, so there's this sense, you know, that, 
again, it, it takes it's a it's a big time sink, and that unfortunately is the issue with a lot of games. Is that I can watch a great movie in two hours, but to experience the human emotion in Last of Us, I have to spend twenty hours playing the damn thing. Yeah. It's the same with Don't Starve. It's that great Agarra Wrath of God. You know the inevitability of chaos overrunning your 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 rafts that's going to happen and don't starve it's just a matter of how long it takes that's the story but the actual mechanics are you're spending a lot of time building a wall out of wood uh, yeah that's too bad i could i can't tolerate that that's that that um of all the things that i don't have in my life that, that it's time is the is probably the one that's most glaring and and just sitting uh, any of those games where I, I, I can't even play mmos anymore because i sit down and i oh, start yeah, yeah. you know clicking on things i'm like okay this is i've got you know half an hour and i'm not going to spend it spend the, you know the only free half hour i'm going to have this week uh clicking on this thing it's just it's not well, what, what made then, because I know you liked this a lot, and this game is something I, I probably haven't played enough to really mm-hmm. give a fair assessment of, but for the most part, it, it sort of bounced off me. Uh, mm-hmm. Why does FTL work for you so well, then? Oh, gosh. So FTL has a couple things. Because F- it's also very Sunless Sea, by the way. I mean, FTL yeah. and Sunless Sea, I think, come from the same DNA. So go ahead. Yeah. So FTL has uh, several things that I really like. One is that it has sort of a defined endpoint that um, yep. is sort of achievable um, or not, but I mean you it, the the action in the game is, each action is a very meaningful um, your sort of sense of increasing you know, might um, and your the, the combinations involved in your choices, you know, their choices are all uh, important whether you have a certain kind of you know flame weapon or a beam weapon or a missile weapon, um, there's the training of your crew to get bonuses using the different systems. I mean, it's, it's all <clears throat> the thing I love about FTL is that in a very small place, it sort of touches all the buttons that um, you. That you get in in a in a much more uh, expansive you know film or book um, you know you, you I picked up I don't know what the something like Fred Saberhagen um, I, when I was playing uh, uh, Astro Titanus I went back and read a few um, uh, a few Fred Saberhagen stories about the Berserkers or whatever but there were all these things about you know somebody in a spaceship and he's doing this and he says push these buttons and and it's it's uh, uh, it, it's a it's a very nerdy thing but uh, it. It, uh, it it pulls all those elements together, and I feel I feel like uh, FTL is has a lot of content for the per time yep. amount of time played. Um, so I, I I can fight a a, a battle in five minutes, um, and and it makes me I make meaningful progress in the game. And in the game, it's not something where I'm spending twenty hours finishing the game. It's more like I could play twenty games. And try to beat my score, uh, or do things in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're they're kind of bite sized time game, but uh, time commitment that I that I can't have. I uh, was trying to talk a friend of mine several months ago into playing this uh, free to play action RPG mm. uh, called Marvel Heroes, and okay. it's just like Diablo, but you're. Um, Okay, you're, you're Iron Man and you're uh, Spider-Man or you're Wolverine or whatever. Okay. It's all licensed stuff, and it's just an action RPG, and you're running around clicking, you're blowing stuff up. And I was trying to talk him into playing it because it's actually very well done. And he said to me, and I don't know why I'd never thought in these terms before, but he said to me, nope, 
I do not want to play any more games without endings. And I I was like, oh, I guess that's kind of a point because so many games are designed to drink as much time as you put into them. A lot of times this is part of its business model. Mm-hmm. But I love to hear that in Sunless Sea, because that's one of the things with Don't Starve. Even though you will fail, it's a game without an ending. Instead, mm-hmm. you just go until you fail. So right. if you're doing well at Don't Starve, you're playing it for 10, 20 hours. Yeah. Um, so I love to hear them talk in Sunless Sea about having endings, having a conclusion. And that, I think, is one of the strengths of FTL as well is you're always moving towards that uh, I guess it's a boss ship or whatever like you're yeah. you've got that end point and that's your you know your job well done you're going to close mm-hmm. that particular chapter that you've played um, and it has scores which you love oh you know that yeah Bruce you may have single-handedly uh, made me more I might have to go back to FTL <laughs> uh, yeah that and that's important to me because um, I, I as this, you know, I also struggle with the futility of time spent playing games, and you know, I don't, I don't claim that I'm getting any extra skill or that I'm learning right. anything meaningful. But the I, the same sensation that let me to go ahead and spend time putting a quarter in a game of Space Invaders when I was a kid to try to get my name on the high score list, um, you know, if I'm if I'm if there's something that I'm trying to attain, even if it's meaningful only to me. Uh, I'm okay with that. But if I'm just like playing Space Invaders and I'm not getting points and there's nothing, it's just the act of blowing up the aliens, I don't really care about that. Like I want to have some way to close the book on the experience and evaluate it and say, yes, this is better than last time or that was worse than last time. Uh, yeah. That whole scoring thing, I know it's very contrived, um, but for whatever reason, it, it makes a big difference for me. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I think it's our, it, yours and my way of trying to um, assign meaning to these experiences that we have some qualms about in some way, um, and we want to at least have a quantifiable result. Right. You can say, you know, I had, I got 157 points, and that time I achieved those points, and that's what I have. But we don't feel that way, though, by the way, about, like, you know, Game of Thrones. You're going to see Godzilla. Like, we don't feel that way about our yeah. other entertainment. Yeah. Why is this? I guess it's because it's interactive, because I have, you know, my participation is, is key there, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I haven't, I have no plans to see Godzilla at all. And why? I Come seen... on. It's giant monsters. What can go wrong? Uh, it's awesome. No, sorry. I, I'll, <laughs> maybe some other time. Uh, but uh, I haven't seen Godzilla, and I, I actually I haven't seen Game of Thrones either. Um, but uh, maybe someday I will. Um, I, I guess I feel kind of the same way about those, though. I'm not sure. Um, I feel like, you know, I, I'm very careful about the movies that I watch. Right. Um, and because often I don't have, you know, if I have two or three hours, um, you know, I have to choose. What am I going to do? Am I going to go see this? You know, I'm going to drive to the theater, see a movie, you know, come back or, you know, or am I going to do a podcast, right? I mean, there's, there's things that I, I have to choose to do uh, when I have as little free time as I do. And um, sometimes I'm more willing to, you know, I, I'm actually more willing to spend time watching a movie that I've already seen in right. order, because I, kind of, I, already, I know that I like it and it's going to be good and I can try to glean something more from it uh, than, uh, than go see something else that, you know, they, like when I went to see Monuments Men. Um, Haha, you saw that. Oh, God. So, anyway. (laughs) But that, uh, yeah, and it really, again, makes me think it's such a shame that, 
you know, my favorite game of last year was was Grand Theft Auto V, which they just did some really awesome things in that game, and there are some scenes in there that are every bit as good as a good movie, but I can't recommend that to you. You're not going to spend 42 hours, and no. that's what it would take. Right. For you to, to have that experience, you have to give it... The, I think it took me 42 hours to, to finish the game. You have to give it 42 hours. And it's... That's kind of an unrealistic expectation for a lot of people. So I, I wish some games were shorter, you know, mm-hmm. I, especially since a lot of the gameplay, Last of Us, for instance. Again, I, I would love for you to be able to experience what they did with their human characters, mm-hmm. but I would not in good conscience recommend anyone have to fuss around with the stupid stealth sequences in there where, oh, you're hiding behind a thing and you're waiting for the guard to walk over there and then you move to this little hiding point and now you have to fight these three guys and now you have to sneak by this boss who you can only mm-hmm. kill with headshots. Oh, you have to reload and do it again because you mm-hmm. failed. What a terrible thing to do to an awesome story and to these awesome performances from these actors and these character animators. Um, yeah, why can't more games be as short as something like Gone Home? Uh, and the reason is, you know, players want, you know, they, they're going to pay 60 bucks. You need to waste 42 hours of their time, right. even if it's, you're only giving them, you know, two hours of great story. Yeah, so, you, yeah. there was something that you, you had mentioned. Um, I read your, I backed uh, Sir, you, Sir, You Are Being Hunted. Okay. Um, because I like those guys. I like the, uh, like the RPS website. Um, I just I, I like what they do with games, and that's kind of how I've been backing things on Kickstarter since Kickstarter started. I sort of sort of throw money things that <laughs> I may not ever use, which might not be that bright. But anyway, um, there's something you said about the game that there were these specific points in it where you encounter these new bosses or new monsters. Yes, or yes, yeah. I would love to... I, I want to experience that. I want to see that. That's, that's, a, that's a moment in time that I want. I want that. But there's no way... No, you got to give it, give, give it 10 hours. Just 10 hours, Bruce. That's all it takes to experience <laughs> five awesome moments. 10 hours. That's one awesome moment every two hours. Come on. Yeah, and, 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 and to be honest with you, it's probably a lot more than 10 hours because my stealth skills are, are definitely... Uh, yeah, for you, to, for you, 20 yeah. hours, Bruce. Yeah, 20 hours. So, yeah. So, so an awesome moment every four hours is not going to work. Um, but I, I, and I, I kind of resent that. I kind of feel like, why can't... Why does it have to be like this? Yeah. Um, and I feel it's almost like the demographic skews. A diff- I mean, I'm I'm much more willing to pay. I, I remember when I was in college and just just out of college, you know, I was much more willing to spend time than pay money because I didn't really have much money. And now I have plenty of money, yeah. and I can whatever I buy something, it's fine. It's not a problem. But I just don't have the time, and um, and I I almost feel like I wish people would make more games based on that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's probably a smaller market. Yeah, uh, you could quit your job and okay. just play games full time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, hey, sounds good. If they can, uh, I mean, and then I then I find out about those all those robot uh, robot monsters. But even then, part of I, I have to say, part of what makes that work, and I wonder, like part of what makes the discovering a new type of enemy in Sir, you were being hunted. Part of what makes it effective. There's a couple of things. And it's yeah. kind of a cheat. One of the things is. This mechanical process of not being able to save the game mm-hmm. except at uh, certain places on the map. Okay. So that when I see something that can kill me, the stakes are higher because if it kills me, it's going to waste my time. You mm-hmm. know, and, and that is kind of a cheat. That's kind of me. You know, that 
because as you mentioned, my my most valuable commodity these days, you know, is time, mm-hmm. and therefore the stakes are higher. Not necessarily for any narrative reason, but simply because I, Tom Chick, will have lost twenty minutes of time since the last time I saved the game. Mm-hmm. So that's part of what makes the moment work. Uh, and anybody, I think, could, would be in their rights. Uh, anybody would be right to maybe resent that. Uh, and another thing that makes it work is that those 20 minutes <clears throat> were uneventful. <laughs> you know, nothing <laughs> happened. Uh, yeah. it, you're just walking around the same old area, avoiding the same robots. So it, it's kind of this cheat of it's a dramatic moment because so many of the other moments of those 10 hours were not dramatic and were tedious and were mm. repetitive. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Um, I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't recommend spending the time. Yeah, I, I won't be. I mean, I have it. It's on my, whatever, in my humble bundle thing because I backed the Kickstarter. But they also, what is it about the English? They had some really good writing in terms. Of, they would drop little letters you could pick up and read, and, mm-hmm. and that was terrible because who's going to read those? But uh, there were a few places where they would force you. They wouldn't force you, but where the writing consisted of naming random name generators for the little towns that you find. And they had the weirdest, I wish I could think of one, but they would just have these really clever, weird names. Maybe it wasn't random, actually. Clever, weird names for the towns that you would explore. And I was like, man. Yeah, that's setting. And that's that's English setting, too. It's the English Mm -hmm. being really uniquely clever and droll. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And I really like that. Yeah. So. Uh, All right. uh, What? uh, So another board game I want to mention real quickly that I've been playing lately. Mm -hmm. That in a negative, in in a way that that the board game fares poorly in comparison to Fallen London. I've been playing a board game recently that involves a lot of snippets of text. Uh, okay. and, and we mentioned this briefly talking to the guys uh, before we recorded, talking to Paul and, and Alexis. Uh, Fantasy Flight has done a series of Lovecraft games that began mm-hmm. with Arkham Horror. Mm-hmm. And Arkham Horror, they added several expansions to it, and it became this huge... Un- it was already messy in the first place. Once they added more expansions it would take you longer to set it up than to actually play it. There's so many mm-hmm. little chits and different piles of cards you had to sort. Just a mess. We played it at your house once. Yep, yep. So you know what a mess. Yeah, and, and it got worse and worse over time as they added more expansions. So at one point, this is what happens with a messy franchise. Uh, you reboot it. So I think last year, they rebooted it with a game called Eldritch Horror. Yes. Um, I have that sitting next to me, as a matter of fact. You do not have Eldritch Horror. I do. You have Eldritch Horror. I have. Why on earth did you do that? Because it's Lovecraft. What am I going to do? All right. Well, well, you know what? I recommend... Um, I don't Should know I if I recommend it? it. Well, the thing is, you can play it solitaire. You can play it. It's a co-op game. So there's no... You don't need the adversarial element of, of most board games for multiple players. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can just sit down and play the characters yourself. And they even, although I don't recommend it, you can even play with just one character. But I recommend sitting down with two characters and playing it. Un- unfortunately... It's a shame that they don't have the fail better guys writing their text because uh. all the text is so it's just it's perfunctory. Um, you know, it, you can read it if you want. You don't have to, and it all it always leads to making some kind of a die roll or doing something. But the reason to play Eldritch Horror is because w- by rebooting Arkham Horror, they brought in people who knew the art of good game design. Hmm. Uh, so. They revised the mechanics. They threw out a lot of stuff that was unnecessary. They made you make fewer and more important choices. Um, so I think it's an exercise in taking the same pattern and revitalizing the gameplay. 
Um, and it's a cool, I guess, it's just a, you get these little narrative, emergent narratives. Just you piece together a little story about your characters, and ultimately you get eaten by Cthulhu or whatever. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, I can't believe you got that. You, you actually picked up Arkham Horror, D- or, uh, uh, Eldritch Horror. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it takes a long time to play with multiple people, because there's a lot of this conversation about, okay, I'm going to go there, and you go there. Well, wait a minute, I thought you were going to go there. Oh, no, he's going to go there, and then I'm going to go here, and you oh, meet me here, and you trade like, me this. Yeah, well, wait, work. do you need that item? Can you give me that item? No, I need this item. Okay, well, you meet me here, and you give me this, and then he'll come over here, and he'll give you that. Okay, well, when are you going to cast this spell? So if you're playing alone, you just do all that in your head, and it's part of the gameplay. But when you're playing with other people, oh, man, does it slow down. Uh, and I guess some people like that. But Could you have people play in separate rooms? Yeah, why would you do that? What? So- so that they couldn't talk to each other. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. But you, that's it's terrible. unrealistic. What if somebody's in San Francisco and somebody's in Buenos Aires? I they see can't what you're saying. Right, right. Very good point. I oh. guess it doesn't model uh, the limitations of communication back then. One of the characters is, uh, is a psychic, and her unique ability is she can, some of the tokens that you traffic in, they're called clues. Uh, and you need them to solve mysteries. Uh, and the psychic's unique ability is she can trade clues with anyone anywhere on the board. She, like, mentally shoots them to to the other person. Uh, so that right there is the only concession to the limits mm. of, you know, she can, she can talk to someone. But, uh, yeah, you can totally coordinate your strategy if one of you is in Sydney and another of you is in San Francisco. It's crazy, mm. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I don't like it. Yeah. Uh, all right, so uh, Sunless Sea will be apparently safe for guys like me to jump into in July. I'm looking forward yeah. to that. Uh, in the meantime, you can, uh, at le- even if you don't buy it, go to Steam Greenlight and vote yes on it. That doesn't take you anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's available if you want to get into the beta now. Uh, follow us on Twitter. I am at, at QT3, the number three. Bruce is at... What is it? Space Rumsfield? Is that right? Space Rumsfeld. Well, there you go. All right. Uh, Bruce has a new wargaming site, uh, wargamespace.com. Check that out. Um, And I am, of course, at quarter to three. So uh, thanks for listening, uh, and we will see everyone here next week. Good night. Living in the limelight, the universal dream.